Hi, I'm Jennifer L. Howell, Esquire. And I'm Ish Ishtar Howell. And I'm David. And you're listening to episode... 69, dudes! Of Every Rom-Com, the podcast that has fun taking romantic comedies seriously. This week on Every Rom-Com, we're taking a trip back in time to San Dimas, California in 1989. We'll discuss a high school movie where the future of humanity hinges on a history project. And we'll take a look at the genre of the bromance as we discuss the Keanu Reeves-Alex Winter movie, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Ishtar, hello, David. Hi. Hi, sis. Welcome uh, back to Every Rom-Com, both of you. You've both been on the show previously. Ishtar, you may remember from episodes on Last Holiday and Somewhere in Time. And David is our sort of our Jim Carrey man, somehow, that happened. Uh, he was on Once Bitten and Yes Man. Glad to have both of you back here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me back. This uh, This will be a really fun one to get into. So it's kind of odd. We are indeed covering Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. This isn't really a rom-com by most stretches of the imagination. Of course, it's not the first time we've covered something that's not a rom-com. But my reason for including this movie in our high school movie series is quite juvenile, as you may have guessed from the introduction. But I guess this introduces you to a new side of our podcast, Uh, maybe the less mature, less sophisticated aspect of the podcast. But I have a great love for the film. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And there's a reason also why I chose these two guests. First of all, my brother, Ishtar Howell. We watched this movie together all the time when we were kids. And my brother is kind of a history genius. I don't know. Do you think that's saying too much, Ishtar? I I think it's probably saying a bit too much. But, (laughs) you know, at at certain times in this life, we've gotten close. So you, you can say it. You can say it on this podcast. I mean, you when you were like six and seven years old, you were obsessed with Abraham Lincoln and you had like a picture of him hanging over your bed. <laughs> and I also just found out from our Uncle David that my mom tried to get him to find you an Abraham Lincoln doll so that you could sleep with it at night for Christmas one year. Because that's, yeah, that's what you that's said you absolutely wanted. The, that's absolutely the case. And I was being very <laughs> one-pointed. Mom and dad kept asking me what I want for Christmas. And I said, only one thing, an Abraham Lincoln doll. I don't want anything else. <laughs> only that. And don't bother with anything else. Uh, that was, that was, that was it. Yeah. You also had like all the presidents memorized. And I think at one point, all the Chinese emperors memorized. And like, I I was, I was working on the Roman emperor emperors, but I had, I ran into trouble when, in like the third century, when they kept assassinating all the emperors and have an emperor for like a few days. Yeah. That, that, that's a difficult patch, but you know, basically from the, from the, uh, Julio Claudians to the, to the five good emperors, I was pretty good. (laughs) Anyway, you can see why my brother is a good choice uh, for this episode. He always loved the history. One more anecdote. Once we went to Galena, Illinois, and there was a wax museum, and my brother actually corrected the positioning of Abraham Lincoln in what was it, the Ford's Theater scene? We we actually were at Ford's Theater. This was a DC trip. Oh, okay. There was a DC trip as as well, and they, they had things positioned wrong. 
um, the the gun was was uh, pointed towards the wrong side of Lincoln's head. Um, Details. Yes, and they corrected it. Yep. Yeah, my, this is my brother. So the the childhood history uh, genius. So I, you've you've merged you've moved into other fields since then, which we'll talk about in a second. And David, I think I just had a hunch about you for this episode. And also, I I was like basically ran by you the ridiculous idea of because I was on episode sixty nine of every rom com, I had to do Bill and Ted's, and you understood. Like you didn't like like look kind of look at me quizzically over chat. You just seemed to understand it. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, you know, it's a perfect opportunity. You know, sometimes we we hit these milestones in podcasting and things just work out and uh this is one of those situations. So, yeah, I, I'm glad you thought of me for this one. And uh <laughs> definitely don't bring up history with me though because uh it was always my worst subject. So, I'm glad you have a history expert on this episode because it definitely is not me. Interesting. I like it. We're bringing in all angles here. This is great, David, because this movie is drunken history. Uh, This this was the predecessor for the YouTube sensation of drunken history, this film. So, you know, we can take liberties here. Interesting. I wonder, David, was that going to be one of your puzzle pieces by any chance? No, but... immediately that that is a perfect one like as soon as you mentioned that that is uh that totally could come up for sure yeah so to segue that a little bit if you haven't listened before to the shows david's been on our show or to david's show itself he's the host of the piecing it together movie podcast and that's a show where he looks at movies and he finds like the little pieces of other movies that may have inspired those movies and it's a great podcast really great listen um, I want to know, David, is there anything new going on with Piecing It Together podcast or any of your projects that you've got going on? There's always something. Uh, th- this year has been the year of live shows. I've been having a really fun time, almost one a month throughout the year, uh, putting on these shows in movie theaters after screenings of movies. And uh, it's been a really fun addition to the podcast. But aside from that, just continuing to cover as many movies as I can and staying ridiculously busy uh also music has been good and busy too i I just finished scoring another short film i'm gonna be starting on another one next week and i have a whole bunch of new uh album music coming out next year i'll be announcing that very soon but definitely keep an eye out for that that is very cool like what is what is your um favorite live show you've done recently if you can choose one well it's hard to say because they're all so so much fun and and like you know the different guest lineups and whatever the movie is um so so it's always a little different but it was really fun though this most recent one was on uh, eli roth's thanksgiving and even if it wasn't necessarily like my favorite movie of the bunch like although it was fun but uh it was definitely our most attended so far and it's always great to feed off that energy and you know, we had a really nice crowd and they were all throwing out puzzle pieces. And so it was exactly what you want out of uh, trying to take the podcast into a live setting. Awesome. I'm really going to I'm going to enjoy listening to that one. I like to wait until I've actually seen the movies before I listen to your show, though. So Good sometimes idea. it does. It does take me a while sometimes. And I'm also excited to you know hear about the new music when you make that announcement. So where can people actually find out this information and, and listen to your podcast and so forth? So the podcast, Piecing It Together, you can find on all the podcast apps and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And then my music, ByDavidRosen.com. Also on all the socials, it's ByDavidRosen. That's B as in boy, Y as in yes, David Rosen, my name. 
uh, and all all the music is available on all the streaming services as well as for sale on Bandcamp and all that too. And I have music videos on YouTube too. Yeah, a very a multi-talented man, David Rosen here. So check his check his work out for sure. And Ishtar, I want to hear a little bit about what's going on with you too. Even though you're my brother, obviously I know some things, but I know you've launched recently a YouTube channel. How's that <laughs> been going? Yeah, I was, I've, I've been mystified because I was just listening to David and and I was just com- completely impressed by all that he's been up to. But uh, yeah, they started a YouTube channel. I only have three videos up there because I took a long break and now I get to uh, start making them again. But that channel is essentially a combination of me teaching people meditation techniques, talking about all the weird phenomena I've experienced in this life, and just kind of talking about different aspects of spiritual development. Yeah, and I think it's going to be a really good channel, Like, and I hope you get some more videos up on it soon, too. Yeah, and you've been on a lot of other people's shows as well. So when you say that you haven't been on too many podcasts, you've been interviewed so many times, Ishtar. Yeah, yeah, that that is true. At this point, I'm I'm all over the internet in certain certain niches, which is actually part of the reason I started my own channel because I I, I didn't want to answer the same questions all the time, and, <laughs> and kind of wanted to tell other other stories. And I'm sort of turning down um there, there's a plethora of near death experience video channels on YouTube, and I think I've just hit my limit of how many of those I should should go on. So. I get to talk about the weirdness of of Lake Geneva and Oregon. And can you tell people what kind of other services you offer and like where they can find you on the internet? Yeah, yeah. I've been teaching meditation for about 20 years at this point. And I've been doing, uh, working as a professional astrologer. What is it now? Uh, Just about nine years, which which is, is bizarre. And my... Meditation website is www.ascension-meditation.com. And my astrological website is www.awakenedlightastrology.com. Excellent. I'm going to put, and also I'm going to put links to all of um, David and Ishtar's uh, sites and social media in our show notes. So you don't have to necessarily be writing this stuff down while you're listening to it. You can find it in our show notes along with many other helpful things like timestamps for our episode and things of that nature. So yeah, I'm so excited to talk with you both about Bill and Ted's excellent adventure today. And before we do that though, I've got a few little announcements for every rom-com. First of all, we're going to have, as usual, a spoiler-free section at the beginning of the episode, and we will let you know when the spoilers begin. Uh, We'd also like to remind you, as usual, that you can follow us on social media. Our Facebook page is Every Rom-Com Podcast and Blog. Our Instagram is at Every Rom-Com. Our Twitter handle is at Every Rom-Com Pod. And we also now have a Blue Sky account at Every Rom-Com. And of course, you can always find us at everyromcom.com. Send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. And please, if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to us, like on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Love to see a review. And finally, we do have one way to help the podcast financially. You can visit our Buy Me a Coffee page at buymeacoffee.com slash everyromcom. And every all the pre- proceeds we receive there go directly towards producing the show, Uh, podcasting, unfortunately, isn't entirely free, and I'm probably going to have to buy some new equipment shortly. So any any help is always appreciated. So thanks very much. And now we're going to go ahead and listen to the trailer for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. 
Now, a motion picture so grand, so magnificent, and so vast, it spans 7,000 years. No way! Yes way! But it starts with Bill. I'm Bill S. Preston! Who was Joan of Arc? And Ted. Noah's wife? We're in danger of flunking most heinously tomorrow. A force from the future. Can we go anywhere we want at any time? You can do anything you want. Is putting history at their fingertips. Let's reach out and touch someone. They're traveling through time. How's it going, royal ugly dudes? Put them in the iron maiden. Excellent! Execute them. Bogus. And they're making a big impression. Historical babes. Now they're home. Everybody get together, remember who your buddy is. To trash the 20th century. We got a live one here. Keanu Reeves, Alex Winter, Napoleon. We're from history. Billy the Kid. Oh my God. Joan of Arc. Sigmund Freud. Tell me about your mother. You a musician? Beethoven. Genghis Khan! Abraham Lincoln. Party on, dudes! Socrates. George Carlin. We're history. If you guys are really us, what number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! <gasps> Bill and Ted's... Excellent! Excellent! Excellent adventure. Party on, dude. <laughs> what do you all think of this trailer? That's fantastic. I, it's so good. And and I just love that uh, they, they're naming all of the figures from history and then George Carlin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who sadly is now a figure from history. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Yeah. Oh, that's sad to think of, actually. So Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was released February 17th, 1989. It was directed by Stephen Herrick, written by Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, and starred Keanu Reeves, Alex Winter, and George Carlin. Bill and Ted are high school students on the verge of failing their history class. If they fail, Ted will be sent to Alaskan Military Academy, and it will break up their band Wild Stallions. While ineffectually cramming for their history report at the Circle K, Bill and Ted are surprised by the appearance of Rufus, an emissary from the future. Rufus tells Bill and Ted that it's vitally important to the future of humanity that they pass their history test, and he leaves them a time-traveling telephone booth which will allow them to witness history firsthand. After they accidentally bring Napoleon Bonaparte to modern-day San Dimas, Bill and Ted decide that rather than just witnessing history, they will collect historical figures from many different time periods in order to get an A-plus on their report. Along the way, they also fall in love with a pair of medieval princesses. When I really look at this premise for this movie, I'm like, wow, they really swung for the fences on this one. But I love it. I was thinking that, too, when I was rewatching this the other day. Like, it is such an out there premise that... It's it's crazy that it even like came together and it, it's hard to imagine like being the studio, seeing the script and thinking, yeah, let, let's green light this. You know? <laughs> so I learned a ton of interesting facts about this movie. A lot of it is thanks to the fact that, you know, we just had Bill and Ted face the music come out. So there were a ton of retrospective articles out there to look at uh, about the film. So some some facts. First of all, um, Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson wrote the Bill and Ted script on spec. 
And it was based on an improv bit that they've been doing about two fairly stupid guys who talk about world events. And they were just doing improv, like playing with their friends. Even they weren't like um, necessarily doing improv for actual audiences. They were just doing improv for fun. Chris Matheson is the one who would play Bill and Ed Solomon is the one who would play Ted. And Chris Matheson's father was Richard Matheson, the prolific author who, among other things, wrote the book Bid Time Return and the movie based on it Somewhere in Time, which we already covered in episode 42 of every rom-com, where you can actually also hear my brother here talk. So I thought that was such an interesting coincidence. I had no idea before we actually started um, working on this. It's very strange. Yeah. It's very strange. I guess time travel runs in the family. So there you go. So Richard Matheson actually encouraged his son, Chris, to change their improv bit into a screenplay, and he later helped him shop the script around. Uh, Solomon and Matheson wrote the outline for the script in three days and the first draft of the script in four days because they'd just been improving this so long it was really easy for them to like do the voice of the characters, essentially. Okay, so the original script had a lot of differences from the final movie, So first of all, the time travel originally took place in a van and an early title for the movie was Bill and Ted's Time Van. I remember finding out about that right before the third movie came out. And I was just like, that kind of blows my mind, you know? Oh, yeah. In a good way or a bad way? (laughs) Um, A little good, little bad. I don't know. Like, it's very cheesy. But like, at the same time, it's just the fact that something could be that different, something that's so ingrained in my childhood, you know? Yeah. And did you hear about these other differences I'm about to list? Like, did you read some of those articles? Some of it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think all of these, uh, these little facts, but um, some of them for sure. And each one, I'm just kind of like my mind just exploding a little bit, but yeah. I I find it interesting. They went with the um, phone booth. It seems like a strange Americanized version of the Doctor Who police police booth TARDIS. Yeah, so funny enough, Stephen Herrick, the director, is the one who came up with the phone booth because the studio didn't want a van because the studio said it would be too much like uh, Back to the Future, right? Because it was also a car, right? Um, So Stephen Herrick came up with the phone booth, but according to Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon anyway, Herrick and none of them had heard of Doctor Who. So it was just like some kind of weird coincidence. Like, So yeah, who knows? But that's, that's what they say. So... Yeah, so other changes from the original um, script. Rufus was originally going to be a friend of Bill and Ted's, who was a 28-year-old high school sophomore who owned the van. Instead of Napoleon, Bill and Ted were originally going to accidentally go to Nazi Germany and strand Hitler in San Dimas. Amazing. Which um, could have been interesting, but I don't know if it would have had the same mass appeal, you know? Like, it'd be a little more controversial, perhaps. Um, other other early possibilities in the script involved landing the van on the deck of the Titanic, accidentally killing Julius Caesar, and befriending a caveman. So those are all things that almost happened in this movie. All would have worked. Yeah. The Titanic <laughs> yeah. would have been a, made a very great. different tone, I think, you know? <laughs> I'm glad they didn't befriend a caveman because that gave more airspace for Encino Man a few years later. That's right. Oh, yeah. That's true. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of the casting, an initial casting choice for Rufus was Eddie Van Halen, but the film apparently was not high budget enough to like really realistically cast him. Uh, They wanted musicians, though, in a lot of these roles. So the three people Bill and Ted meet in the future were originally going to be cast as the members of ZZ Top. 
but again, they, they didn't couldn't afford that. So instead, they got members of the E Street Band, the Tubes, and the Motels. So I didn't realize that all three of those were like musicians. I just thought they were random, you know, supporting actors. Did any of you recognize them? Um, I didn't. No. no, I did not. Okay, so then in terms of production, the movie was originally made in 1987, but it didn't get released until 1989 because De Laurentiis Entertainment went bankrupt. So originally they thought maybe this movie wasn't going to come out at all. And though the movie was set in San Dimas, California, which is a city 30 miles east of L.A., it was mainly filmed in Phoenix, Arizona. But this is cool. They also shot for two weeks in Italy where they shot the ancient Greek and medieval scenes. But you know what? I had no idea those scenes were actually filmed in Europe. I thought they looked a little cheesy to me. What do you what do you did you feel the same way about it? It looked absolutely European to me. It did? Okay. Uh, it did. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I thought they were sets. So, um, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the tree species, the trees were, uh, that's what tipped me off is, is they had, um, some beautiful, huge beech trees and it's hard to find beech trees that wide, uh, in mm. North America. So, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. When I was a kid, I thought it looked really like low rent kind of stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm really surprised that they actually went to Italy. The movie had a budget of about eight to $10 million but it went on to gross 40.4 million. So a modest success, I would say it made, made back a lot of money. And I mean, and it's definitely the kind of movie that went on to do plenty of money on, you know, home video and all that. So. Yeah. That era was very good for like being able to put out these movies that had like maybe modest success in theater, but then video was an exploding market. So yeah, it was just a different world for movies. Yeah. So Bill and Ted's would eventually have two sequels, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey in 1991 and Bill and Ted Face the Music in 2020. And I didn't know this. There were a couple of TV shows. Did either of you watch these TV shows? I didn't. I, I, not that I remember anyway, it's possible because I mean, I loved Bill and Ted as a kid, but, um, I, I don't think I did. And I think they're really hard to find nowadays. Isn't that right? I didn't actually go looking for them. Old me would have totally gone looking for them when I had more time. I, yeah. yeah. I actually, when we did Clueless, I watched episodes of the Clueless television show. That's how dedicated I usually am. Oh, I remember that show. <laughs> but in this case, yeah, I didn't get around to it. Apparently there's 13 episodes of a Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure animated show. And that mm. had voice work from all the original stars. But in 1992, there was also a very short-lived live action series based on the movies without the original cast. And I can, right. and yeah, I can really see why that would not succeed very well. Oh, and there was a lot of merchandising related to Bill and Ted, apparently, including video games, action figures, and a cereal. I think there was comic books too. Yeah. Uh, I, I could swear I remember having a comic book uh, back then, and I probably played at least one or two of the video games. Yeah, I do remember reading that there were comic books. Yeah, that's definitely true. So, Yeah. I didn't eat the cereal. There was always a cereal for everything. I think we had the Ghostbuster cereal in our yes. house at one point. Yes, we did. That was a good one. <laughs> yep. I can't remember even what any of these cereals tasted like. Probably, probably not sugar. So good. Um, tasted like kind of like Captain Crunch, actually a bit. Um, the ghost, but with marshmallows in it, is what I recall. Um, oh yeah, the marshmallows were the little ghosts. Ghosts, yeah. Remember the ghosts, and then there was a Slimer one that was green. Yes. As well, yes. Excellent. Now I really want to know what was in the Bill and Ted. I think maybe a little phone booths would have been good. That would be good. <laughs> okay, so some of the stars reflected recently on Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. 
Alex Winter told The Guardian in 2020 that he thought um, representing close friendship against the craziness of the world is a large part of what's carried the films. The films are written by two very close friends, are performed by two very close friends, and there's a sincerity to this that people enjoy. And I think, you know, that's that is part of the appeal of the film. It's very good hearted. Yes. Yeah. And Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter did indeed become friends even before they were cast in the roles. Winter said uh, in GamesRadar.com, we both rode motorcycles, we'd go to auditions, and then we'd go back to one or the other's house and just play bass. They've remained friends throughout the years, and Reeves has actually worked on several of Winter's directorial projects, like in small ways. And writer Chris Matheson talked to GamesRadar about the film's legacy, saying both Ed and I are very appreciative of the fact that somehow the meme we put out into the world was be excellent to each other, which is a really nice meme to have out there. We're both really happy about that. So yeah, a little bit about the history of the movie. And now so much for like the making of the movie. I want to know about your history with this movie. And David, I'm going to go ahead and start with you because I kind of know my brothers. I'm going to, I'm going to let you talk to Ishtar. Don't worry for yourself. But No problemo. But what's your history with this movie, David? When did you see it? Like, have you watched it over the years? And what's what's been your opinion about it over the years? So I watched it in the theater when it first came out. I would have been eight at the time. And it was just like the coolest movie that ever existed um, <laughs> when it came out. And I just, I thought that they were the absolute best and, and the coolest people ever. And I loved it. Um, but then I basically don't really remember watching it over the years. I don't know why. And I, and I remember when the, uh, the recent one in 2020 was coming out, I rewatched, uh, the, you know, the first two movies and part of my takeaway from rewatching them was like, you know, why haven't I been just rewatching Bill and Ted every few years for the last <laughs> 20 years? Like I love these guys, you know? And, uh, so yeah, I, I don't know why they just kind of got lost to time for me, but, um, I, I'm really happy that since then now I've seen this one twice and uh, I'm probably going to rewatch Bogus Journey one of these days too. But um, yeah, it's just such a fun movie and it so perfectly captures the eighties and just that kind of a, you know, a lifestyle just like, just, you know, rock and roll and just goofing around. So who just out of curiosity, like who did you see the movie with? Do you remember? I don't remember. I would imagine my parents probably went with me, but um, I don't remember if I also had like friends or maybe they even just dropped me off or something. But definitely I remember seeing it in the theater, though. And you never had it on videotape or like whatever. I probably had it. I just don't remember it being a movie that I like watched over and over again, but I'm sure I at least had it and probably watched it a couple of times at home. Okay. Yeah. I think we had a very different experience. If I recall Ishtar, I, I don't remember seeing it in the theater. Did you, do you, you don't remember I, seeing I, it in the theater, do you? I do not at all remember seeing it in the theater. Yeah. I just remember it sort of appearing on videotape one day. I mean, I'm sure it didn't literally just appear, but like, I just remember watching it like all the time on videotape. Yeah. I think the only things we watched more were maybe the Indiana Jones movies and the original Star Wars movies. Like, does yes. that sound about right to you? Or And that, Ghostbusters, of course, clearly. Well, yeah, yeah, but that, that's a different category in our, in our upbringing. It could have appeared yeah. if you told your past self to buy the tape <laughs> in the future. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I, yeah, I think Labyrinth was closely behind Bill and Ted's. Oh. I think we watched Bill and Ted's or, or the first video of JFK. 
Um, <laughs> that was later. That was later. Yeah, that was later. <laughs> yeah, um, I always fell asleep for some reason, like near the end of the first tape of the two-tape yep. edition of JFK. Yeah, it's really because you were a teenager and you, after like uh, the soda, you had a sugar crash, and <laughs> after school you were just down for the count. And I'd, I'd put the second tape in and watch the rest of JFK <laughs> every time. <laughs> Okay. We, we definitely watched Bill and Ted's more. And for some reason that Bill and Ted's act, I'm glad you asked me to do this one because Bill and Ted's for some reason tracks in a certain way. One of the, I don't know, uh, foundational films of my growing up experience in that, in that TV room, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the comings and goings. I don't know why exactly there are other movies maybe that I thought were uh, more interesting or, or, or better made, but there was something about Bill and Ted's that was just back. Maybe it was having both Lincoln and Napoleon in one film. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> sure. Uh, uh, and uh, certainly that, I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any more thoughts about it, Ishtar? Do you remember like how old you were when you watched it? Did you remember having a favorable, like you also probably already like were quite a Lincoln scholar by the time I, you watched I, it, I would say. Oh yeah. Already. I was, I was actually, that was the heart of my, um, Lincoln obsession, and I was about to segue into Napoleon. So, like, you weren't disturbed by the fact Lincoln was behaving very strangely in this film. Like, you were just like, "This seems good." Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everybody got a pass, basically. Uh. Do you think there were any either of you? This question actually goes out to either of you. Do you think there were any historical figures you learned about first by watching them in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? All of them. Oh, <laughs> I, was, I was always a bad student. Um, no, I mean, I probably knew who these people were, but I definitely got a uh, a little bit of an extra education about them, even if it's a little skewed by the comedy of it all. But certainly like this is, you know, this was my, you know, understanding of these people for a long, long time. <laughs> Well, it's better than thinking that Caesar was a salad dressing dude. So sure, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like I feel I remember going to philosophy class in college, and even then, like, still there was the thought in my head: the greatest wisdom consists in knowing that you know nothing. And I was like, I've, I've totally got Socrates covered. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I guess I'll just finish up like I like I said I feel like this videotape just appeared one day. Watched this movie like all the time with my brother and then I continue to watch it like about once a year, once every 2 years. I've owned a copy of it like my whole adult life. And we'll talk about the sequels and our opinions of those later cuz they kind of entail a little bit of a spoiler, I think. So, fair enough? Sure, fair enough. We're going to move on now to our cast and crew and I get to introduce Keanu Reeves. So Keanu Reeves was born in 1964 in Beirut, Lebanon, but he was primarily raised in Toronto, Canada. His mother was an English performer and costume designer, and his father was a Hawaiian geologist, but he mainly lived with his mother. Uh, Reeves decided to be an actor at 15 and dropped out of school at 17. He worked in TV for a few years until his film debut in 1986 in the movie Young Blood. Um, I've never heard of that, but that same year, 1986, he attracted critical attention for his role in River's Edge. And he appeared in several other movies before Bill and Ted's, including Dangerous Liaisons. So Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was definitely his breakout role. And then he went on to appear in both Bill and Ted's sequels and the animated series. And he had quite a run in the late 80s and early 90s. He also appeared in movies including Parenthood, Point Break, 
My Own Private Idaho, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and Much Ado About Nothing. But it was kind of 94 when he had a second breakout role in the Jan de Bont film Speed, opposite Sandra Bullock and Dennis Hopper. And I remember really loving that film when it came out as well. Mm-hmm. So in the late 90s, Reeves appeared in some kind of less successful movies, including A Walk in the Clouds and The Devil's Advocate, although I love The Devil's Advocate Oh, it's a also. fantastic film. Yeah. But then he found huge success with the first Matrix movie in 1999. And of course, he's gone on to appear in three sequels to that movie. And in the 2000s, in addition to Matrix sequels, Reeves also appeared in films including The Gift, Constantine, Something's Gotta Give, A Scanner Darkly, and The Lake House. And then the 2010s again started out a bit slowly, but then in 2014, Reeves starred in John Wick and launching another successful franchise with three sequels so far. And I have to tell you, I just watched John Wick for the first time last night, literally. Nice. Well, good for you, sis. Yeah. Welcome, welcome to the club. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't as into it as everybody else. I think it was built up too much for me. I mean, I, it was fine. I liked it, but yeah, sorry. Another question. Did you see Constantine? No, I haven't seen that yet. I, I kind of like that one too. Yeah. Well, apparently there's going to be a sequel. So good news yeah, for yeah, you. Yeah, the big fan following, Constantine. So then in the 2010s, he also directed his first and so far only film, Man of Tai Chi, which he also appeared in. I feel like I need to see this now. Has anyone seen this? I haven't. I want to watch that too. Yeah. I didn't know he did that. So now I have to watch it. Right? Uh, yeah. Other projects he did in the 2010s included the movies Knock Knock, Destination Wedding, Always Be My Maybe, and the TV show Swedish Dicks. And recently, Reeves has appeared in sequels to Bill and Ted, The Matrix, and John Wick. And he's contributed voice work to the movie DC League of Super Pets and to the video games Cyberpunk 2077 and Cyberpunk 2077 Phantom Liberty. Reeves has right now one film in post-production, Ballerina, which that's a John Wick-related yeah, movie, isn't it? Yeah, it's a spinoff. Yeah. Okay. He's also in production on Constantine 2, and he has three projects in pre-production, an action comedy called Good Fortune, a horror crime movie called Outcome, and the action movie Berserker, for which Reeves co-wrote the original comic. I didn't even know he was writing comics. I learned a lot. (laughs) And recently, Reeves began playing bass again with his band Dog Star, which first played together from the mid-90s to the early 2000s. So, like, clearly we're rebooting everything at the moment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, he's, Reeves has occasionally also served as a producer since 2010, and he's also a publisher of books. In 2018, he created the small press X Artists Books, along with his business partner and romantic partner, Alexandra Grant. So Keanu Reeves is kind of the king of it all right now. Any other thoughts on Reeves anybody has or, or just any anything you want to say about him before we move on? At the time of this recording, John Wick Chapter 4 is my number one movie of 2023. So. Wow. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. Okay, I got to go see it now. It's amazing. It's ridiculous, but it's amazing. Okay, I'll t- talk about Alex Winter. Uh, So Alex Winter is probably best known for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, but he's also a writer, director, and producer. Born in England in 1965, his family moved to Missouri when he was five. His parents were involved in the world of dance, and he started acting at nine years old. In 1978, he moved with his mom to New Jersey and began acting on and off Broadway. 
He had good experiences during this time, but in 2018 he revealed that he had been sexually abused as a young actor. Winter told The Guardian that this experience of abuse gave him PTSD for many years, which would eventually lead to him mostly quitting acting in 1993. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, For college, he attended the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU and began directing short films. Though he'd previously appeared in a few small roles in TV and movies, his breakout role was in The Lost Boys in 1985. He appeared in a few more films before Bill and Ted, including the period piece Haunted Summer. After Bill and Ted's, he participated in the sequels to that movie, as well as its animated series. He also appeared in movies including Rosalie Goes Shopping and Grand Piano, as well as TV shows including Bones and Robot Chicken. Winter had already been directing shorts and videos since 1985, but in 1993, he co-wrote and co-directed his first feature, Freaked. Keanu Reeves has an uncredited role in that film. In 1999, he wrote and directed the thriller movie Fever. In the 2010s, Winter began mainly working as a writer, producer, and director of documentaries. His documentaries include Downloaded, Deep Web, The Panama Papers, Showbiz Kids, and The YouTube Effect. Yeah, like I I had no idea he was a documentary director, and like his documentary topics sound kind of interesting fascinating yeah, yeah 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 well you see a trend i I've, I've actually now i know i've watched one of his documentaries without knowing it was one of his documentaries I oh watched really panama papers oh cool okay uh, very cool yeah i've heard the youtube effect is great i haven't gotten a chance to watch it yet though that came out this year nice mm. so Win- winters has two movies in post-production as an actor absolute dominion and destroy all neighbors He is also in pre-production as a director and actor on the movie adulthood I had no idea really that Alex Winter had done so many things. I'm really glad to know that he's been up to so much over the years. Oh mm. yeah, absolutely. You mentioned uh, Grand Piano. Uh, that is a movie I love. It's oh. a small role in it, but um, he's really great in it. And it's such a good movie. Great. So George Carlin plays Rufus. George Carlin, primarily a stand-up comedian, but also appeared in TV and movies, including, of course, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. He was born in the Bronx in 1937 and raised in Manhattan. Uh, His mother left his alcoholic father and raised him and his brother on her own. He went to Catholic school and served as an altar boy, which he would later become an atheist, and obviously religion was a big part of his act. Uh, He dropped out of high school and then enlisted in the Air Force at 17, He began working in radio while in the Air Force, and after he left the Air Force, it became his job again, and he then moved to Hollywood. Uh, Comedian Lenny Bruce heard the show and helped get Carlin a booking at The Tonight Show. Carlin began appearing regularly on TV, including The Tonight Show, The Ed Sullivan Show, Merv Griffin Show, and more. He also began doing his comedy routine in Las Vegas. In 1967, he released his first solo comedy album and would release 18 more albums throughout his life. In 1968, he had his first credited film role in the movie With Six, You Get Egg Roll. In the 70s, his comedy became more critical of American culture. In 1972, he was arrested in Milwaukee, Wisconsin for disorderly conduct after performing his famous routine, Seven Words You Can't Say on Television. The charges were later dropped. The routine later prompted a Supreme Court case regarding free speech on radio airwaves. It was decided that between the hours of 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., there could be limits on free speech. And I just want to interject something here. So we, we heard that he was arrested in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 
And then shamefully, this is about our hometown Ishtar. Okay. (laughs) Apparently in the 1970s, uh, quote, he was advised to leave town when an angry audience threatened him at the Playboy Club in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, for joking about the Vietnam War, end quote. That's from the New York Times. So Milwaukee arrested him, and in Lake Geneva, they threatened to, like, you know, hurt him if he, you know, didn't get out of town. So I mean, I'm sure some of those those um, awful people at the club were from Chicago, though. Well. So, you know. Maybe. Yeah. There's a rivalry between uh, Wisconsin and Illinois that my brother's alluding to here as well. Yes. But, but, I'm, but I'm just sad that Wisconsin twice, Wisconsin yeah. twice did this to George Carlin. I'm sorry, George Carlin. Yeah. Oh, Wisconsin. Uh, in 1975, he was the first host of Saturday Night Live. And in 1976, he made another film appearance in Car Wash. And then in 77, he performed his first of many stand-up comedy specials for HBO. Before Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, he also appeared on Welcome Back, Carter, in the movie Outrageous Fortune, and he began narrating the animated Thomas and Friends children's show. Does that blow your mind or what? Like I'm just that like, is crazy. <laughs> oh, I remember that. It was wonderful. He was a great uh, Mr. Conductor. Hmm. He had such a great voice. So, I mean, you know, it makes sense that he could do anything, you know? So. Yeah. Uh, in addition to the original Bill and Ted movie, Carlin also reprised his role for the Bill and Ted animated series, as well as Bogus Journey, and archival footage was used to give him a small cameo in Bill and Ted Face the Music. Which was not horrible. Like, oftentimes when they do that, I hate it, but like the way they did it in Face the Music, I felt was sort of respectful. I don't know. Yeah, it, it was, you know, they really didn't have much to work with, and it was, yeah, it was respectful enough, I think. Certainly more than some other examples. Yeah. Uh, In the 90s, Carlin appeared in the movie The Prince of Tides and began playing Mr. Conductor on the children's show Shining Time Station, as well as continuing his work on Thomas and Friends. In 94 and 95, he also appeared in his own TV show, The George Carlin Show. Then in 1997, he wrote the first of several comedy books, Brain Droppings. In 1999, he appeared in his first Kevin Smith movie, Dogma, and he would later appear in a small role in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, and as Ben Affleck's father in Smith's rom-com Jersey Girl. Yeah, Other role. film roles in the 2000s included Scary Movie 3, Voice Work in Cars, and Happily and Ever After. He died of heart failure in 2008 at age 71 and was posthumously awarded the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor in 2008 and is frequently listed as one of the top three American comedians of all time. I'd say number one, really. <laughs> and... Uh, also, Jen, I don't know if you know this when you put me to introduce George Carlin on this, but uh, a friend of our family's, um, he was a customer of my family's record store, Wax Tracks, and uh, he visited us like many times when we originally had the store in Pennsylvania, and then we, in 1998, moved to Las Vegas, where I am now, and uh, he came in all the time, right up until his death, and I, I think we were at his last show, actually. Wait, so wait, who, wait, who, George Carlin came into your shop? All the time. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And uh, I think him and my dad might've even went to dinner once or twice. Like, wow. yeah, like they talked all the time and my, he was a big collector of like uh, old soul music and doo-wop and uh, stuff like that. And my dad has like one of the best collections in the country. And so he would constantly be getting his stuff from my dad. 
No, I had no idea there was that connection there. That's really cool. I just know yeah. that like when we initially talked about doing the show, you were saying something about how cool George Carlin was. And so I'm like, all right, David gets to introduce George Carlin then. <laughs> he, he's the best. He's the best. And uh, backstage at one of his shows, he called me a little shit once. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do to earn this? Oh, I just was standing there. I had braids <laughs> at the time. I, I looked ridiculous. <laughs> and he said, and what's the little shit been up to? I see. Okay. More like that. Yeah. So now that we've done the cast and crew here, I think we can look now at the actual film. So first of all, the credit sequence. Okay. It's a testament to how many times I saw this movie that I have like this memory of feeling that the crest credit sequence was like interminably long. But then when I rewatched it, I'm like, it's actually not actually that long. It's just when you're a kid, it feels really long. I think. I just watched it um, last night. It is too long. Okay, well, <laughs> I was like, I remembered it being much longer than it was. Like, I remember just like either fast forwarding through it or just being really bored when I was a kid. And it's to the song Breakaway by Big Pig. That's the name of the band, apparently, <laughs> Big Pig. And it's like set against this like vaguely futuristic computer graphic background or something. Yeah, that's a, a real 80s, you know, hallmark. These like long, <laughs> arbitrary credit sequences. So. <laughs> Watching that beginning, um, all the progress that I made in 23 years of meditation was lost in <laughs> in five minutes. Why? Because you were suddenly so impatient? I was. I lost all my equanimity, and I have oh. to start all over again. Sounds so good. So I, I, I think it is too long. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's, it's a, I'm really sorry that like this podcast has caused this problem, Ishtar. Yeah. Oh, it's not. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> no biggie. Yeah, no biggie. <laughs> so when we finally get out of the credits sequence, we get um, George Carlin's character Rufus narrating about uh, the year 2688 in San Dimas, California. I'm really impressed that the world is still around, to be honest. So, <laughs> And not only is the world still around, but everything is apparently clean. Even the <laughs> like, dirt. Yeah. That's what he says. Even the dirt's clean. What yeah. is this obsession with like the best thing that could possibly happen in the future being that everything is clean? I wonder. Yeah, there's some darkness there, I sense. <laughs> is it like it's actually that, a really good question. Is it like that LA was so smoggy and dirty or something like in the 80s or something? And so being clean is the best thing that can be imagined? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, it's, a, it's a general sort of a futurist um mid-century futurist aesthetic everything's always clean and jetsony yeah you know and 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 people are wearing shiny space suits and you know and in you know various films and tv programs so i I do think there's a weird cleanliness vibe going on you know modernist architecture i find to be often quite sterile yeah there's always a minimalist aesthetic like there's never any tchotchkes lying around like you're on a spaceship like forget about like a bookshelf no you're not right right Right, Corbusier and his architecture even decided to lift his buildings above the ground to quote free them from the ground. Huh. So, so that that started the whole put a building on stilts um, uh, kind of uh, practice. And I always preferred, um, you know, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, keep it on the ground and make it horizontal. And uh, <laughs> all right, before we get too far afield into architecture, but well, but I do appreciate I do appreciate your observation though, and I think there's something to it as well. It's that this future aesthetic is so bizarre to me in this in, in the entire movie. But it's like very like everything in this movie, everything's kind of you know not meant to be taken too seriously, probably right? True. Sure. Yeah. 
But um, speaking of not taking things too seriously, the other good things about the future are apparently the bowling averages are what? Like way up. Bowling is way way up. up. Mini golf averages are way down. Way down. Yeah. And we have, I can't remember how he describes the water slides, but there are many water slides. The most excellent water slides. Oh, you've got it all. Did you write this down or did you just remember it? I just remembered. I watched it last night. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. After being introduced to the future, we now cut to the garage where Bill and Ted are filming each other, failing to play rock music. And like this scene really introduces you to their characters. They're debating about whether they should learn to play their instruments, film a rock video, or get Eddie Van Halen first to make their band successful. I mean, they just perfectly capture that, you know, kind of, you know, goofball rock and roll aesthetic so, so well in this whole opening. Like we know exactly who they are immediately. They have, and they have video cameras, which was still kind of a new thing to be like mm-hmm. using a camcorder to record each other. And this is like just a few years after MTV. So yeah, the the American middle class in this film is doing pretty well for itself. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, not much better than they are now. Yeah. 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 If you look at eighties films, they all look rich now. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now we're going to go to Bill and Ted's history class, and I've got a little clip of Bill and Ted at their history class. So let's go ahead and listen to that. So, Bill, what you're telling me, essentially, is that Napoleon was a short, dead dude. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You totally blew it, dude. Ted, stand up. Stand up? Yes, son, stand up. Now. Who was Joan of Arc? Noah's wife. <laughs> Listen, guys, don't forget tomorrow, final report, 1 30 to 3 30, okay? Hey, guys. Mr. Ryan, before you say anything, my distinguished colleague, Ted, and I wish to express to you our thanks for all the things we have learned in your class. And what have you learned? We have, uh, we've learned that the world has a great history. Yes, and that thanks to great leaders such as Genghis Khan, Joan of Arc, and Socratic Method, the world is full of history. It seems to me the only thing you have learned is that Caesar is a salad dressing dude. Bill, Ted, this is really quite simple. You have flunked every section of this class. Now, unless you get an A-plus on your final oral report tomorrow, guys, I have no choice but to flunk the both of you. Yep. <laughs> so I really like uh, Bernie Casey plays Mr. Ryan in this film. And I always like admired his character, actually. I thought his acting is, I think, really good in this. Like he's just playing a, a you know, typical history teacher. Did anyone else like have him as a standout or? Oh, yeah. I, I think he's an excellent history teacher <laughs> in the film. Yeah. He, he actually seems ideal. Yeah. And you could kind of tell that he like gets a little bit of a kick out of them and their shtick. You know, even though he really wants them to like, you know, better themselves. Yeah. And Bernie Casey, particularly, I remembered him from being in Revenge of the Nerds when we even first saw this movie, because that was another movie we had watched 
a lot. I don't think that one ages nearly as well as Bill and Ted's, no. but <laughs> sure. Yeah. But not, not any fault of Bernie Casey's, but yeah, so he's Mr. Ryan and we have, yeah, this classic situation where people are about to flunk. And in this movie, it's very important that they pass because otherwise their band is going to break up. We also get to know a little bit about Bill and Ted's characters here. So they're kind of faking their way through things, reading the board behind Mr. Ryan, uh, calling Socratic method an important historical figure, that kind of thing. <laughs> I feel like in the 80s, this char- these characters seemed pretty innocent, but like there's definitely been criticism of this movie for like um, making it seem cool to fake your way through things or be dumb. What do you, what do you, what do you all think about that? I mean, that's basically what I've done my whole life. So I've... <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you're, you've got your own talents though. Certainly David, like, I Thank don't think, you. yeah. Thank like, um, like, I think it's like people have like employed it to like stuff, like, I don't know, George W. Bush being president, like not sure. to get too political here or something, but like yeah. politicians kind of faking their way through pretending to know things kind of thing. Did, did, did Winnie the, did Winnie the Pooh lead to idiotic politicians? <laughs> I, I don't think so. I, I think these two are sort of in the sort of the Taoist idiot tradition. Okay. And, uh, I, I, I don't think they eroded, uh, civil society. I didn't know there was a Taoist idiot tradition. Like, I don't think we have too much time to get into it, but is there, can you summarize that? Well, you just have these, these characters who are kind of fools. Yeah. Uh, and having adventures and, and stumbling around and, and, and proving themselves uh, wise in their foolishness uh, mm. re- repeatedly. Uh, kind, of, kind of an old trope. So yeah, actually writers, the writers, Solomon and Matheson said they didn't really conceive of Bill and Ted as stoners, which is another assumption people have made about the characters. They just kind of call them stoners, even though we never see them smoke pot or even allude to smoking pot in the movie. They said rather than being like a stoner uh, archetype, they saw them as being, quote, open to everything. So that's from the special features on the Blu-ray. I don't know. Did either of you assume that they were stoners? I kind of never did. Um, No. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Um, although, you know, certainly all of the stoner duos, you know, that have come since, you know, feel a lot like Bill and Ted. Hmm. And so it's it's understandable why some people might make that assumption. But yeah, no, I don't think so. And I also don't think you ever see them drink either. I mean, they order beers at one point, but they oh, don't yeah. even drink them. Yeah, that's true. They're excited to order the beers, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they're yeah. they're just they're just nice and sweet. Yeah, I tend know? to think they've just had too much sun exposure. Yes, you there know you they just feel like Southern California to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. they don't even need any drugs. It, it, it is they are the drug now. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. This is another funny thing I learned about this. So director Stephen Herrick um, apparently had a per- particular direction he would give Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves throughout the, the, sh- the shooting. He told The Hollywood Reporter, I ended up distilling it to one phrase that I used to tell both Alex and Keanu. I need more Labrador Retriever. <laughs> because I, <laughs> I felt that, that these guys were sort of like lovable labs. And weirdly enough, they understood what I was talking about. And once you have heard that, once once you've read that quote, and you go back and watch the movie, you can completely see where they're being more like a dog. Yeah. Yeah. The eyes. Yeah. The head, the head nods, the body movement. Yeah. 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 I love that. They don't, dogs don't have a bad bone in their body. You know, yeah. no. they're just, they're just perfect little orbs of, of awesome. <laughs> Especially Labrador retrievers. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. Well, again, that that's another thing. They're playing the it, whether it's uh, from the Taoist tradition or from a Western tradition. They're playing the fool. They're playing the innocent fool mm-hmm. who who discovers the pot of gold because they don't know they can't. Hmm. True. True. Yeah, and I love their um, speaking of the the going with the lab thing some more. Just the their movements are so amazing. Like their like physical acting, like the part where uh, Mr. Ryan says Ted and Ted stands up. Like the way Keanu Reeves actually stands up and moves. Like everything about his body language is amazing in a way I can't quite describe. I don't know. Do either of you have a good description for it? I can't. It, it just he it's, it's he's so loose with his movement and and so almost like he's being pulled around yeah. in a way. He, he moves like, he moves like um, life force is either pushing or pulling his body and his body is kind of catching up to it and, yeah. and, and being projected by it. And those big eyes and that floppy hair, it's just like all so perfect. Oh yeah. So good. Not to go on a tangent, but I don't know if you guys saw yesterday, uh, it was going viral on Twitter. There was a, uh, a video from bogus journey of, uh, Hal Landon jr. As Ted's dad. And oh. when Ted like kind of, uh, takes him over and he so oh. perfectly is doing the Ted movements. Yeah. It's ama- an amazing performance. Yeah, I did. I, when I watched bogus journey again, I don't want to get too far ahead, but like I did, that was one of the standout moments for me in the movie was that yeah. opportunity for him to play that. I thought that was great. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. One. And just like one more thing I wanted to mention is like the language use in this movie is so interesting. Like they're simultaneously have this very limited vocab- vocabulary where everything is like excellent or bogus and or woe but then they also like have a lot of adverbs egregiously heinously like <laughs> you know that like, stuff's all great it, yeah it's such an interesting voice that um matheson and solomon gave these characters although it should be said that they wrote the characters totally interchangeably when they wrote the script they didn't care who they were giving dialogue to so they kind of speak in one voice yeah which makes sense. I mean, all young people kind of, you know, they get all of their their little words and phrases and stuff from the same sources. So, yeah, I think it also lends to their kind of bromance aspect, too, though. You know how they kind of function as a unit. Sure. Yeah. It's, which is interesting. It's sort of an unintentional benefit in a way. Yeah. All right. And then we'll talk a little bit. You mentioned already, David, um, uh, Ted's father is is, an, is one of the characters here. Uh, let's talk a little bit about their families. So first, um, neither of them has an actual mom, which I found interesting. They don't even mention their moms. Hmm. I didn't even yeah. realize that no. until right now. <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah, like in a modern teen movie, you'd have to make like a big deal out of that. That would have to be some sort of psychological thing that they were dealing with. And in this movie, it's just like, nope, we're moving on. Yeah, it's very interesting. Which definitely gives us more plot momentum, right? Like in modern movies, I think there's almost too much psychological baggage all the time, you know? Mm. I almost wonder if that if that's something Solomon and Matheson dealt with. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's something they, yeah. uh, you know, together, they both maybe had that experience. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Actually, I didn't look up much about their backgrounds. That would be an interesting idea. There's also just a lot of movies without moms in the world. Mm-hmm. If you look at the world of teen movies, there's a lot of missing moms. The world of like Disney movies, there's a lot of missing moms. I don't know mm-hmm. what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course, this clears the way for Missy, who is Bill's stepmom, um, who is a very young, attractive blonde girl who was a senior when they were freshmen. <laughs> Any, any, either of you fancy Missy when you were younger? No. 
I mean, probably, but I don't really remember. Yeah. Well, they both find her attractive in the movie. There's this one part where they're kind of looking at her cleavage, but like there's almost no cleavage till it got there. It's interesting. But it's played as this like really sexy moment. They're just idiots. They don't know what they want. No, they don't. <laughs> I just find I find it kind of innocent again, because like in a maybe 2000s movie, there would have been a lot of cleavage there, right? You would have seen a lot of the breast. In this movie, there's just this tiny peak and it's just this, but they're still kind of peaking. Another, it's another world. They're, they're, mm. they're very innocent in, innocent beings. Yeah. And and no mothers around, whether that may, probably wasn't an intentional choice, but uh, it, it kind of gives a sense of uh, that they can't come from nowhere. Hmm. Like I get the sense that their mother is California hmm. in some way. That, that's. Wow. I feel like you just wrote an academic paper about Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure without meaning to. We tried. <laughs> that would be like a line in it for real. I like it. <laughs> their mother was California, an examination yeah. of the motherlessness of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> it sounds like a Red Hot Chili Peppers song. <laughs> Which yeah, one? It, that's even better. <laughs> Their mother yeah, why was wasn't California? Flea in this film? Why wasn't Flea or Anthony Kiedis in this film? Because <laughs> they weren't Kiedis, popular yet, probably. Uh, getting yeah. there, getting yeah. there. They would have been cheap enough at this point. Yeah, that you know what's interesting actually now that you bring that this up. Since this, is, since this movie is so like focused on music, it would have been really interesting if it had come out like three, four years later in the beginning of the grunge era, rather than oh, yeah. in this this eighties metal thing that was still kind of like vaguely happening at the time like instead of eddie van halen they're talking about pearl jam or they're talking about nirvana totally different vibe oh totally <sighs> would not would not have worked with these two they they can't be rain soaked they need to be sun washed yeah mm-hmm. it just yeah. shows you like the huge cultural change that was happening like at that time in our in our history basically yeah yeah anyway sorry we're going far afield but it's interesting it's an interesting field so we also see Ted's dad, um, and he threatens Ted that he's going to go to the military academy if he flunks history. And actually, I don't even think he's waiting to see if he flunks history. I think he's just basically, you're going to the military academy. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, we now come to the scene where Bill and Ted are going to first confront time travel. Initially, they're just hanging out at the Circle K, which is apparently a convenience store. You live out west, David. Is this a real place that you've been to, or...? I already brought up Wax Tracks once. Uh, Circle K is literally directly across from our store. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they've got a and, bunch of them. And until recently, that that's I think that Circle K was going to be um, decommissioned, the one that was used in the filming. I think you're right. I think I saw yeah. something about that. Yeah. So Bill and Ted are like sitting in front of the convenience store and asking pa- random passerby historical questions. Um, Ted goes up to a lady, excuse me, when did the Mongols rule China? And then the lady who works at the Circle K says, I don't know. I just work here. <laughs> I really, I would like to try this method of, of learning about history sometime. I think it would be interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that would be, that could be, be like the Socratic method. <laughs> <laughs> Go around asking people in the Agora random things. I do not even know what the Agora is. So The, the marketplace where, oh, he, okay. where Socrates hung out. All right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was making a joke. You know, this, the method isn't a random thing, as you know, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Your joke is very sophisticated, Ishtar. This is why we need you here. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I always loved this scene when I was a kid, though. I thought it was so funny. And here, I've got a puzzle piece, David. I don't want to steal your thunder, but like um, they're sitting in front of a convenience store, much like uh, in about four or five years, uh, Jay and Silent Bob would be sitting in front of a convenience store. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Really, every stoner duo, you know, you could talk about was inspired by Bill and Ted, but definitely hanging out in front of the convenience store is, you know, directly from there. And then uh, you could also, you know, some of the imagery of the time travel, you can go and say inspired this movie back to the future. You know, there's a lot of wind and lightning bolts and Mm. all those kind of things going on in the uh, visuals here. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I don't know if other time. Yeah, I've seen a couple other time travel movies, but I can't remember. Like maybe time after time had some lightning effect. Do you mm. remember Ishtar if it did or not? No, I don't remember the effects in that one. Okay. Well, um, yeah, well, I think the Terminator did it too. Also wind and light, lightning yes. effects and stuff. So yes. yeah, I mean, that definitely like kind of goes with the, uh, you know, the whole motif of time travel, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Something impressive has to happen, basically. You can't just yeah. lie down on a bed like Christopher Reeve does in Somewhere in Time. <laughs> that was the best. That's the best. <laughs> it is actually the best. But yeah, this we're going for a different aesthetic here, for sure. sure. Yeah. So yeah, we have the wind and the lightning. And all of a sudden, the uh, telephone booth lands in the middle of the parking lot. And um, Rufus comes up to Bill and Ted and says, Gentlemen, I'm here to help you with your history report. <laughs> And then the best line in the movie, in my opinion, Ted says, strange things are afoot at the Circle K. Perfect. Yep. It's like it's like Shakespearean, you know, in a sense, that line. Yeah, it is. Yep. Yeah. I, I think of convenience stores. I kind of always had, a, a, you know, like I wanted to go work at Plaid Pantry so badly. I, I think of them as sort of liminal spaces where anything can happen. And I don't think it's because of this movie. Really? I, I think there's something about convenience stores, especially ones that are open late. Yeah. All sorts of different, it's, you know, it's very, they're very ephemeral that the people come in. Anything can happen there. They're, they're mystical places. In the modern sense, I think it's a wonderful place to have a, have a time travel adventure kickoff. I can, I, you know, I can actually kind of see that. I, I can feel it. I'm, I'm with you there. Well, in any case, like we're in the space of the magical convenience store and Bill and Ted, um, the rest of the scene, Bill and Ted meet themselves from the future. Um, They come in another time travel phone booth and tell Bill and Ted to listen to Rufus, basically. And this is where we get the 69 dude thing. Like if you're us, what number am I thinking of? 69, dude. (laughs) We have that whole conversation. And the time travel logic here makes zero sense to me, though. So first of all, like, they need to tell themselves to go traveling in the future, but they already had to have gone traveling. It's like one of those circles, like the watch and somewhere in time, like where does, where does this cycle begin? No, absolutely. But every time travel thing doesn't make sense. Yeah. There's never been the only, I mean, this is jumping ahead, but the only time travel thing ever that makes sense is the keys. Um, That is, we'll talk about it later. Mm. Yeah, maybe. The circularity thing is the element that does make sense. What doesn't make sense, but I understand why they did it, uh, was to have uh, time running in San Dimas. Uh, That that, that I think they just had to put into to add stakes. Yeah. uh, Because there wouldn't be any stakes if it was like proper time travel. You could just fuck around forever. Yeah. uh, You know, and there'd be no pressure. So I think that's the only reason they felt they had to do that. 
Yeah, and quite and quite frankly, I feel like later they must have fucked around forever to like get some of the results in their history presentation. I'm just saying, I'll talk about that later. But like, yeah, it doesn't always seem to add up to me. The, the yeah, we don't know where the trash can comes from. You know, that goes on the dad. Like, yeah. remember oh, no, yeah, the trash yeah. can. So they're having to do a lot of this shit. And I didn't, I didn't see any evidence. Of, was he hanging on the ceiling to drop the trash can? I didn't see him in the shot. It had to come, you know, anyways. Okay, that- we're getting too far ahead of ourselves now, but we'll get to that <laughs> when we get to the end. Yeah, okay. there's like, I don't feel like the time travel rules make a hell of a lot of sense. Like we did a whole time travel series for every rom-com where we dig- dug into like theories of time travel. I think Happy Death Day to You, we got into that a little bit in depth, like on what would actually, what the theories are. But yeah, um, these aren't them. Put it that way. <laughs> That's okay. All right. So let's get to the time machine itself. So um, again, we, the time travel takes place in a phone booth, which what do you think kids these days, like they see this and what do they even think about this phone booth? I wonder. What a weird TARDIS. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of kids these days probably think of phone booths as that thing from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yeah. That could be. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like at the time though this was still like a thing like where you know a phone booth is another public ephemeral space as you're talking yes. about ishtar yeah yeah um and apparently apparently just in terms of the practical effects in the movie apparently the phone booth time travel sequences really did involve the actors sitting in the phone booth while it was moved <laughs> on a hydraulic lift this is this is a great quote alex winter told the hollywood reporter it was a miserable experience and said quote Anything that involved the circuits of time did not go as planned because it was a rickety piece of crap. There were nine or 10 of us teetering on this thing, duct taped to a hydraulic unit against a green screen in a studio in outer Tempe, Arizona, like a death ride canoe from the worst carny ride you've ever been on. End quote. (laughs) Sounds like a blast. Yes. Apparently it was quite hot and quite stinky and quite crowded in there. Wow. Yeah. Doesn't surprise me. And then, of course, we get like the um, the spe- the special effects, the spectacular circuits of history. I love those. Yeah, those are wonderful. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I don't know if they first thought of the visuals for the circuits of history or for the um, water slides, but clearly there's a link between the water slides and the circuits of history. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, and the fact that Napoleon, um, you know, basically has his initiation in both the same way. That is interesting. Okay. Yeah. We've got some sort of like visual echoes in this film. Yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. Absolutely. I'll also say like, I don't think there's any movie that I know time travel is going to be a part of that. I'm not excited to see how they visualize the time travel Mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. Like it's always going to be a draw for me. Maybe I just like psychedelic weird stuff, but um, you know, it's always fun to see what they can come up with. That's true. Yeah. There has to be a lot of creativity involved in that. Yeah. And I like the way um, Face the Music um, sort of honored the the like the look of the circuits of history and just made it a little more polished. I thought that was good. Yeah. All right. So so we mentioned Napoleon. Napoleon has been brought out, brought up. The first place they go in the phone booth, Rufus takes him on this journey, is to Austria, 1805. And I so because I'm a nerd. I went and I looked up like all the dates and time places they mentioned in the movie. And I tried to figure out what was the historical event that would have been going on. And they, it seems that Solomon and Matheson did plan this sort of mindfully because most of them bring up pretty important events. This looks like it would have been the battle of Austerlitz in December of 1805, 
one of Napoleon's greatest victories. Um, according to Britannica.com, quote, Napoleon's 68,000 troops defeated almost 90,000 Russians and Austrians, forcing Austria to make peace with France and keeping Prussia temporarily out of the anti-French alliance. So yeah, they chose mindfully a place for them to find Napoleon. That's I know cool. you're a Napoleon fan, Ishtar. Anything you want to comment about it? or? Well, I mean, they did the best they could. It needed some snow. <laughs> okay. Uh, Austerlitz. Yeah. They, they, yeah. In Scott's new film, they, they'll show, I think, Napoleon uh, cutting off the retreat of another army by forcing it to run run on a lake and then having his uh, artillery um, blow holes in the ice. Oh, so that's and, the uh, same battle that's in that sequence? Yeah. yeah they, oh. Yeah that but yeah there was that's his his crowning um jewel is austerlitz as a strategist interesting and okay. uh the the emperor of russia was so impressed by how napoleon beat him and his buddies that for a while he became a napoleon fan didn't last that long but you know he was so enamored with with this uh military genius that he wanted to you know buddy up with him <laughs> Yeah, I did not know. So we're seeing Napoleon sort of at one of the heights of his achievement. And then yeah. instead he is accidentally blown into the circuits of history as the time travel machine retreats. And he ends up coming to San Dimas with Bill and Ted. So, yeah, I love too that there's no logic. Like these historical figures are missing from their time periods. And like, there's no, I mean, were they always just destined to leave and come back? Yeah. <laughs> you can't think too much into it. I know, really I know. Can't. I know. I totally ruined about time with this. You just don't even want to like, yeah, poor Jason Kleberg had to come on the about time episode and have me just destroy the logic in that movie. So. And really none of them, I don't think gain much, you know, it's like they, they went to a mall. They didn't read any of their their own histories. You know, uh, Lincoln could have had a little bit of a go ahead. Yeah. You know, like three extra security guards, you know, when we go to see my American cousin. And uh, Napoleon, you know, could have, you know, got the memo, don't invade Russia. Yeah, yeah. And, but no, they they didn't learn anything. Joan of Arc, don't, don't trust the Dauphin. He's going to stab you in the back, you know. Yeah, no benefit was gained. So, nope. yeah, who can say? So just like really quick, like just because like I feel like I need to do this, I'm going to give a few basic Napoleon facts. So the real Napoleon born 1769, died 1821, ruled France from 1799 to 1814 and also for a short period in 1815. And he was ruled as an emperor over much of Europe for a time, but was eventually defeated and exiled to the island of Elba and had a famous defeat at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. And Ishtar, if you have anything fast you want to add about Napoleon or why he's important, be my guest. Oh, fast. (laughs) Fast. I mean, like, I'm I'm talking like less than a paragraph. Okay. I mean, uh, well, no, definitely a mixed figure. You know, uh, he's he's both a a, sort of a bloodthirsty tyrant in one respect. He he was quoted as saying, "I can I can afford to lose thirty thousand troops in a month." So so the numbers of people dying in his wars did not bother him. At the same time, he spread the the code Napoleon around Europe, around the countries that he conquered, which was much more civilized than the than the bullshit laws that most of those countries were, hmm. uh, were, they were very feudal. So a lot of modern Europe is still built on the code Napoleon. And, and, the, and the Napoleonic code did, did enshrine certain ideas of the enlightenment. So, so he's, he's a, he's a nuanced, I treat him as a nuanced figure hmm. in, in certain senses. He was so, when he invaded um, Spain and Portugal, like in, in 1808 or nine, right. Uh, he was confident that 
the Spanish and Portuguese would would see them as liberators because they were liberating them from the uh, their feudal lords and the Catholic Church. Of course, the populations didn't think so. I guess they wanted, in my opinion, they liked their own bad government to a to a foreign aggressor's better government. I probably shouldn't say that in certain countries, including the one I live in. Uh, <laughs> a little bit of a francophile um, here, but but interesting man. Of they, his, you know, another thing they invented canned foods for his army uh, because they were, you know, it was it was inefficient to try to just ravage the countryside wherever you went. So they they figured out how to how to um, pressure heat and pressurize foods and, and can them in, in glass jars. So that's that's where we get that from is you know um, peas that can last you for a couple of years or something like that uh, mm. in a jar. So uh, what do you think about the way he's portrayed in this film? Well, it's better than Ian Holm and Time Bandits. We're not, we're not going for accuracy. I, I I think it's a spirited. He was he was probably much taller mm-hmm. um, uh, because I think the French foot had thirteen inches, where the English foot had twelve, or or, or something like that. So he was. Um, um, five foot something meant something different. So he wasn't as short as we, we make him out to be. So I think that that's, that's kind of, um, been, been piled on. Uh, I don't know. It, it, I, I, I think it was a wonderful comic, uh, send up and, and actually kind of, uh, uh, treats him with a great deal of respect. Yeah. I actually love the actor who plays Napoleon in this film. It's played by an actor called Terry Camilleri. And like, I'm just, when I say I love the actor, I love his portrayal because, I find that it is so he has so much dignity that he puts into it. He's playing this totally straight. He is just trying to be what would Napoleon do in any given situation? You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. And just like the looks in his eyes all the time. Like I don't actually have any clips of Napoleon that I'm going to play because most of the great part of this performance is in his face. And it's amazing. Yeah. Absolutely. His face is so good. All of his little reactions and all that. He's great. Taught yeah. a, taught a generation of um, of of young Americans how to say shit in French. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yes. Okay, so they get Napoleon into San Dimas, and they leave Napoleon with Ted's little brother Deacon, who's like this thirteen year old kid. And Deacon seemingly has no idea who the hell Napoleon is, but he just like watches this middle aged man that's been deposited with him, like which is amazing. <laughs> that kid's great. <laughs> yeah. So then they go tell Deacon they're going to collect other historical figures. Again, no reaction from Deacon. He's just like, whatever. And then Ted gets into the phone booth and dials a different place in history and says, let's reach out and touch someone, which again, today, nobody would have any idea what that is. That was like a very popular AT&T commercial in the 80s. Mm. Sure. So now we get to Billy the Kid. They go into uh, to the Old West. That's one of their time periods for their history report. Um, this one is listed as New Mexico, 1879. And apparently this would have been during the Lincoln County War, which lasted yeah. between 1878 to 1881, uh, which was a war between competing business interests. And apparently Billy the Kid was a member of the Regulators, which was one side of this war. I don't know if he had a personal interest or if he was just getting paid to be part of that. but I don't so- recall. Yeah, and some basic Billy the Kid facts. He lived from 1859 to 1881. His real name was Henry McCarty, but his alias was William H. Bonney. Um, orphaned at 15, he began to steal, became a gunfighter and an outlaw, and he is alleged to have killed 21 men during his life. And this is a really interesting thing. So the actor playing Billy the Kid seems like he's in his maybe late 20s, but Billy the Kid was only 21 when he died, and he would have been about 19 during the events of this movie. So he would have looked kind of like Bill and Ted. 
if he if it had been a real portrayal of Billy the Kid. Yeah, and he was not a looker either. <laughs> he, you know, um, it looked like he probably had small survived smallpox. He's got a heavily pockmarked face, not a great face. So, yeah, yeah. This is like the Bon Jovi version of Billy the Kid. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. When did Young Guns come out? Anyway, I don't even know when that movie came out, but I think that was the aesthetic they were kind of going with. Yeah, or Silverado or something. Yeah. Now I really yeah. want to know if Young Guns was first. But- though. You, you, I think you mentioned elsewhere that that there's sort of a blazing, blazing saddle scene, but actually the, their first entrance into Old Westworld is the guy in the latrine and he's humming and farting. Yeah, in, in his in his outhouse. So that that to me, blazing saddles gets in right away. Sure, with, with, with that farting business. <laughs> yeah. It's so childish, and usually I don't even find that kind of humor funny, but I do find it funny in this movie. I can't even explain it. It's hilarious. He does the guy. The guy they had doing it, he did it perfectly. I think, (laughs) too. Whoever that man was. Young Guns was eighty-eight. It says, which actually this would have been filmed before Young Guns. So I don't know. It was in the air, maybe. Okay, so in their whole thing in the Old West, it's just like leans on all the Western movie cliches, right? They go into like a bar and there's like the women dressed in like the kind of prostitute outfits and people are gambling. I didn't read anything that said Billy the Kid particularly gambled much, but in this movie he does and cheats people at, cheats people at cards and yeah, it's a whole thing. Any any opinions on this scene? Was it a favorite of yours at all or? No. <laughs> yeah, n- not particularly. I mean, like you said, it just leans into all those, you know, classic Western movie cliches. So it's, yeah. it's, it's well put together though, you know? Yeah. I think the choice of Billy the Kid comes out of like a, like a boomer's childhood imagination. Mm. Yeah. Like, um, <laughs> yeah, that, that's my opinion of, of, of that. And I'm going to, I'm going to, another puzzle piece I would have for this is that Back to the Future 3 is set in the Old West. So this got to time travel in the Old West first, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. We now come to Socrates, or rather, Socrates, which apparently is the way you're supposed to pronounce that. I looked at yes, it, looked it, it up. Socrates. <laughs> you, you find it listed under Socrates. Yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> which is hilarious. Like, okay, they, they heard their history teacher say Socrates, right? And I think they're getting most of their knowledge from hearing people rather than reading things. But yeah, then they do these mispronunciations of people's names all the time. So I don't know. Okay, so Socrates, we or Socrates, I'm going to start saying it like that. I'm going to be one of those annoying people. Socrates, we find in 410 BC Athens. And I looked that up. And apparently this is a year that Athens had won a victory over Sparta and democracy was restored Mm -hmm. after a short-lived oligarchic coup. Yeah. So another interesting time. And they look up Socrates in their history books and they get the quote, the only true wisdom consists in knowing that you know nothing. To which they say, that's us, dudes. <laughs> <laughs> but there's something to be said for that, right? Yeah. 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 Again, the fool. The fool theme. And a little bit of self-awareness. Yeah. 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 I like that these characters aren't totally unself-aware, you know? Like, I think that's part of their charm compared to like, and I like Beavis and Butthead too, but Beavis and Butthead seem like they're so unaware. You know what I mean? Like, they just don't even know how dumb they are. No, they don't. 
Like, so now they, they go and philosophize with Socrates. Um, he's got his, this tablet with sand, which I never heard of him having something like this. Do you think he would have Ishtar? No. Yeah. Un- unless, um, no, well, not, no, because actually the, the geometry stuff starts with Plato. Okay. Not with, not with Socrates. So Plato would have had something like, like a stick to do in the sand because he, you know, was into the, no. Yeah, well, anyways, so Socrates has like a sand table that he's like philosophizing with. And uh, so the, the example of philosophy they use is Ted goes up and says, all we are is dust in the wind, dude. <laughs> and then he goes to Socrates, dust, wind, dude, with the sand table. And that is an amazing scene. I love that scene. Oh, yeah. And then Socrates responds, like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives in Greek, which here we have another thing. So, David, you probably knew that this was like a soap opera, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about kids now, but yes. Yeah. Our parents watched Days of Our Lives, and that was like the the tagline for Days of Our Lives. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, This is so. You made me watch that for a whole summer. What? Well, yeah, okay. there was a storyline you were really into. <laughs> Are you going to hold this against me? Our parents no. got addicted to it. <laughs> no, no. I just, when I watched um, Bill and Ted's, I was like, oh, I know where this comes from. <laughs> this is the converging of these two streams that I know about. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And let's see, before we move on, some basic so- so- Socrates facts. Now I'm com- completely confused about how to com- pronounce his name. He would live from 470 BC to 399 BC, lived in Athens. Famous for his method of philosophizing, the Socratic method, which, like, to give a very simple explanation, is involves asking and answering questions in a dialogue until a contradiction is exposed in an in initial assumption that students have made. So mm-hmm. it's still used, like, widely in universities even today. And our knowledge of Socrates comes mainly from his student Plato's writings. And he ended his life, he was found guilty of heresy and corrupting the youth and sentenced to death. He drank hemlock, which mm. was a poison, to die. Very painful. Yeah. And I think he's a great figure to have in this movie. Like, not only for his connection to, like, you know, speaking with youth and, like, being kind of um, an outlaw figure in his time, I guess. But just to have that, like, thinker in the movie. But he's also a very playful character in this whole movie, the way they portray Socrates. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I like how he's like an old dude, but he's, you know, later on, he's like just having fun yeah. and everything. So he's which, like getting down with everything. Which which actually, to me, the makes sense of the historical um, Socrates. I think he's kind of portrayed by both um, Plato and Xenophon as a bit fun-loving. All right, now we move out of Socrates. We, we go to medieval England, and this is really the only time period where they don't pick up anyone like historically significant. Now they've got the they've got Socrates and Billy the Kid also in the time machine with them, and they kind of leave them behind while they go to explore a castle they see in the dif- distance, which they refer to as the Castle of King Henry. And um, there were many King Henrys in England during that time. Um, this doesn't actually seem to reference any specific king, though, and none of them seem to have had daughters matching these princesses that mm. they meet. We don't then, know about the princesses because they were kidnapped. Oh, that's, that's why we don't know about. There you go. Yeah. You've solved it. You solved yes. the problem. Mm-hmm. So they spot the princesses up in a tower and Ted says, those are historical babes. <laughs> and they just kind of instantly fall in love with them, which is like, you know, of course happens in so many movies. 
But here's a clip of when they finally sort of get their way into the castle and meet the princesses. So this is our this is our like official romance of the movie. It's not given a lot of time in the movie, but here we are. That, that old man he must find a way to escape before the night. But how? What's that? Whoa. Those boys. I can't believe they're here. <laughs> How's it going, ladies? You're the ones we saw in front of the castle. I am Ted of San Dimas. And, uh, I bring to you a message of love. <laughs> from who? From, from myself. And what is this message you speak of? Uh... I have some lyrics. Oh, you beautiful babes from England, for whom we have traveled through time. Will you go to the prom with us in San Dimas? We will have a most triumphant time. <laughs> Way to go. father want? But to be married to two horrible old men today. No way! Will you help us escape? Of course, of course babes. babes. Uh. <laughs> How's it going, royal ugly dudes? I am the Earl of Preston. And I am the Duke of Ted. them in the Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden? Excellent! Execute them. Bogus. We'll save you, babes! Alright, there we go. That famous line. Another one kids these days wouldn't get. Iron Maiden. Nobody knows that's a metal band anymore, probably. I think some, some okay. kids might still, you know, especially the shirts. They might have the T-shirt yeah. and not even like know any of the music. That's true enough, I suppose. Yeah. So these princesses are kind of throwaway characters in the movie. It's interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah pretty much. I didn't even remember their names until I had to for the show. And I looked and they have been recast in each sequel. The same actress has never played the princess. Missy is the same actress through all three movies, but not the princesses. Yeah, well, Missy, Missy is a character. <laughs> but it's, it's, this is their big romance, though. And I think that's like so much showing that this is, in fact, a bromance instead of a romance. Cause like the, the romantic angle is there for like a blip. And then it, we, it disappears again, really, until the movie, until the end of the movie. Yeah, no, you're right. Like, did this part of the plot make any impression upon you when you were watching it? Zero. Yeah, no, no, nothing. I think there just had to be a romantic interest. You know, it's just part of the story, you know, any story at this point in time. Yeah, I would have really preferred if one of them had been into Joan of Arc, actually. I found her much more interesting. <laughs> but Yes. 
<laughs> might have interfered with her mission though. So I don't know. <laughs> anyway, there's another part of this scene where Bill and Ted are like in these um, armor suits of armor and they start riffing on like a star Wars, like uh scene, like one of them's like Darth Vader and one of them's Luke. And apparently that was just them improving, which I love. Oh, that's great. And yeah, there's another the scene from empire strikes back. Yeah. Yeah. And there's another moment where um, Bill believes that Ted has died and then he finds out that Ted's alive and they hug each other. And then we get, of course, our homosexual homophobic slur in the movie. So, which was also pretty inevitable at that time in the, in the movies, but it seems like so off kilter with the rest of their personalities, you know? Yeah. That's strange. It's such a weird moment looking. I had forgotten about it when I rewatched this in 2020. Um, and it, it's so weird and it doesn't feel like it fits, but at the same time, I mean, it is just something that those kinds of guys would say back then. Yeah. And like, not, you know, not saying that's a good thing necessarily, but like, it's just uh, for the time for the eighties, that was just, it was, you know, as, as commonplace as calling something, you know, the R word or whatever, you know, it was like just a word that kids used. And, uh, it fits in with these kinds of kids, these kinds of dummies. I think we've finally gotten to a place where you can see two guys hug, you know, in a show without them needing to like, you know, decide that they have to make sure that everyone knows they're not gay, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like finally, I think we're there where people where guys can just show affection to each other, but yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> but what's interesting is Top Gun, like definitely had much more like um, guys like, you know, oiled up playing volleyball and they never need to felt the need to defend their sexuality, you know? Yeah. Quentin Tarantino, even like his That's character right. in Sleep With Me even points out like how, <laughs> like how almost homoerotic that movie is. Like mm -hmm. if you ever watch that, like that bit that you can find on YouTube. like <laughs> You can ride my tail anytime. <laughs> yes anyway um yeah so bill and ted then are after in at the end of this scene we just listened to they're arrested and sentenced to death but socrates and billy the kid rescue them like in a, an exciting chariot drive off all right now we come to the visit to the future which i always like it seems like a it's like you said ishtar it's like there's it's like those clean lines that minimalist aesthetic like everyone's just sitting around in a room and it seems really boring to me, actually. Extremely boring. Yeah, the future kind of sucks. Like, <laughs> yeah, there's peace, but it's boring as hell. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is so funny to me because this is utopia. And in utopia, what you do is you sit around and you like wear the same outfit as everybody else, which is apparently silver. And you do a fake air guitar, which is meant to mimic Bill and Ted. It's an, it's an Apple store crushing your face forever. <laughs> <laughs> That is good. Yeah, I like it. And um, yeah, what else is there to say about this? I don't know. They want Bill and Ted to talk to them and they go, be excellent to each other. Party on, dudes. And that has apparently become the slogan and the ethos for their entire civilization. So they're all excited about it. Not bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, you can do worse for sure, right? Yeah. But yeah, this is this is the excess of this movie, though, that you just watch this and you're like, yeah, this works. This is totally fine. Like it somehow fits. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it, I, I never liked the future aesthetic and I didn't like, you know, they're they using I know they were in style in the 80s, those uh, V 
V-shaped guitars. Oh yeah. It's like, yeah. Oh God. You know, uh, for some reason, the two of those things I always put together in my mind, I thought, no, that's not what the future's supposed to look like. It's supposed to look quite different. And everyone wears sunglasses, even though they're inside. That's another thing you have to do in the future, apparently. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway, so we come back to the present a little bit. And this is like my absolute favorite, favorite. These are my favorite scenes in the entire movie. Napoleon in the present. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We get him at the ice cream parlor where like there's these waiters going ziggy piggy, ziggy piggy and encouraging him to eat this giant ice cream sundae. Apparently those are the writers, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon play the waiters who say ziggy piggy. They're wonderful. Oh yeah, absolutely. They're great. And they put the badge in the right place on his uniform. (laughs) Yeah. We see Napoleon totally stuff his face on the ice cream along with Deacon. And he has these friends who are these girl twins. It's all perfect. I don't even know why it's it's just great. I feel Um, like it's impossible to explain why it's so good. It just is. You have to watch it. Yeah. You just have to experience it. Absolutely. It's just so much fun. Yeah. And now they go to a bowling alley um, and Napoleon is changing the bowling score. (laughs) Yeah. He's cheating. Do you think this is a disparagement of his character, Ishtar, or do you think he would indeed cheat at bowling? I don't think he would cheat at bowling. No? No. No, I I think he'd take his defeat like a man and then commit himself to becoming the greatest bowler. (laughs) Anyway, this... After he's cheating at bowling and kind of acting like an asshole, like Deacon and the twins ditch him. And so he's Napoleon is now lost and wandering in San Dimas. But he he picks up his hat after he gets thrown out of the bowling alley and comports himself with great dignity as he walks out into the distance. Now there's a rapid fire succession of them, you know, with the historical figures. They don't end up spending as much time with any of the next people. They just start grabbing people. So first they grab Sigmund Freud out of Vienna, Austria in 1901. And we find him there in 1900. He had just published The Interpretation of Dreams. And in 1901, he published The Psychopathology of Everyday Life, which is the text that introduced Freudian slips as a concept. He had not yet published on his sexual theories, such as the Oedipal Complex, which come up later in the movie. And just basic Freud facts. He was lived from 1856 to 1939. He invented psychoanalysis, which somehow I kind of forgot about. I don't know, because it's so huge. It's something we take for granted that psychoanalysis, that examining your your mental your your mental state is part of what we do now, right? Sure. Well, literally didn't exist like before Freud, like in that form. Like people just thought there was something physically wrong with you. Like it's it's kind of amazing. Like his contribution to culture yeah, is and, and his main method was the free association method. And that's why why he would have people sit on the couch, but he would sit behind them so they couldn't see him. So that they wouldn't react to his micro, his his facial tics. Hmm. So then they could they could by free associating, they would come upon what what their actual problem was. Huh. So I actually as, didn't as, realize that's why he did it that way. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't. Yeah, he wanted them just to be completely free, and he would just sort of observe. And one thing I found out that was interesting about Freud is he spoke. Uh, German, French, Italian, Spanish, English, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So really, he could have probably translated among all these historical figures pretty well. He was a towering genius. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So they grabbed Sigmund for a totally realistic, he would have spoken perfect English like he does in the film. And next they grabbed Ludwig von Beethoven, who we find in Kassel, Germany, 1810. Apparently, this was during his middle period from 1802 to 1812. And it was during the time that he began to grow deaf. And uh, there's a connection to Napoleon here. 
Uh, Napoleon's brother, Jerome Bonaparte, had offered Beethoven the position of Kapellmeister at the court in Cassel, uh, which means the director of music for a monarch or a chapel. He, we find him playing the song Fur Elise, you know, that famous song. <laughs> He's believed to have composed that in 1810, the year in which we find him. So they did thoughtfully put this together in terms of the year. And another thing that was apparently thoughtfully put together, apparently the costume design, the Regency costume design here is really good. According to Hilary Davidson, the author of Dress in the Age of Jane Austen, apparently she measures like other Regency productions against what the extras in Bill and Ted were wearing. Wow. Yeah. And the actual costume designer in question is named Jill M. O'Hannison. Oddly enough, David, she was the, also the costume designer on Once Bitten, where I did not find the historical costumes to be very convincing. Yeah, yeah, not as accurate, I imagine. <laughs> Maybe she got criticism for that movie and she's like, that's it. I'm going to make the best historical costumes ever in my next 80s comedy. There you go. Um, yeah, and some other basic Beethoven facts. Um, just see, he lived from 1770 to 1827. He was one of the world's most famous composers and pianists, and he wrote many symphonies and opera, other pieces. Just I, there's, you can't sum up Beethoven. I'm sorry. No, so no, you can't. But we also get a musician now, and Bill and Ted are also into music. I don't know if you know they really pay that much attention to his music, though. You know, maybe not. Yeah rock dudes they just don't uh they don't appreciate it you know i, I think eddie van halen appreciated them yes that's true yeah beethoven and bach yeah. jimmy page certainly and then ishtar yeah. didn't you have something to say about beethoven and napoleon having oh, a- I've, i i made the mistake of digging into um and discovering that there's a ongoing historical argument about where beethoven stood on napoleon mm. um so what, what i've always understood in my life which may be incorrect was that was that beethoven was uh, at first, seriously excited ab- about Napoleon, thinking uh, Napoleon was going to be the um, was going to go around and crush the uh, repressive monarchies of Europe as the champion of the ideals of the French Revolution. And that what I'd always always heard was that in 1804 he found out about Napoleon crowning himself emperor, and then uh, and, and basically had a tirade. And and in the tirade, that the old saws that he uh, changed the name of a piece that he was writing in honor of Bonaparte and. Instead, changed it to the uh, heroic symphony. Which, if you if you go online, um, you can you could find the Emperor Concerto in three movements, very different movements. It's it's uh, the ones, in my opinion, the ones done by Glenn Gould are are, are wonderful. So, but there's some debate about this. It's not there's certain. some there's some to de- yeah. I, I've started. I, I didn't go through all those <laughs> journal articles. That's okay. But there's some review about whether um, you know Beethoven had a more nuanced opinion of Napoleon from start to finish, or whether he really did have him up on a pedestal and had had this sort of um, huge reaction and sense of betrayal. Um, but but certainly so. these are characters who would have been aware of each other, which is interesting. We have he was now profoundly his- aware of Napoleon. Yeah. yeah, we have historical figures now in the time the telephone booth that were contemporaries. <laughs> in fact, and in fact, it's in wild. 1810, he would have been, um, he would have been, you know, Beethoven probably would have been getting into an argument with Napoleon if mm. this were if they were having yeah. real interactions. You know, I would have kind of liked that version of the movie. I would have liked that special deleted scene. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, like, hey, what are you doing here? <laughs> Yeah, it never really comes up. Nobody's like really like interacting with each other as a historical fi- figure, reacting yeah. to another historical figure, right? Yeah. Right. Kind of funny. Yeah. yeah. So now we get Joan of Arc. She would have been a contemporary to the princesses, probably. 
Um, she's played in the movie by Jane Weedlin of the band The Go-Go's, which is kind of awesome. We find her in Orleans, France in 1429. And from October to 1428 to May 1429 was the Siege of Orleans. The English besieged Orleans, France. And in May 8th, 1429, Joan of Arc led the French forces to break the siege. So again, in an important part in her life. Basic facts of her life. She lived from 1412 to 1431. She was a peasant girl who at age 12 began to have visions from God that she must reclaim her country from the English. And at 16, she began to lead armies. She wore her hair short and dressed like a man to protect herself. And she helped to win a series of military victories. Um, But then in 1430, she was captured, given to the English enemies and convicted as a heretic. She was sentenced to burn to death. Um, And then much later in 1920, she was canonized as a saint by the Catholic Church. And I ended up watching the really like uh, the really well-respected silent film from 1928, The Passion of Joan of Arc, (laughs) preparing for this film. I would not recommend it as a double feature, but I am glad that I watched it. So, Wow. Wow. (laughs) Amazing research. I mean, it really has very little to do with each other. Like the passion of Joan of Arc the whole time she's being put on trial for like to die. Right. And she's got these big eyes and like all this emotion. And in this movie, she's kind of like a happy go lucky, you know, girl. And they have the the telephone booth show up in front of her. Like, like after she's praying to God. So it's kind of like she's getting a vision of Bill and Ted, which is so cheeky. It's wonderful. Mon Dieu. Yeah. Yeah, she says that the Archangel Michael appeared to her, I guess, like in her history. So I guess Bill is or Ted is the Archangel Michael now. Yeah, nice. absolutely. <laughs> that works. All right. And then they get Genghis Khan. Now, now in my 2023 brain, I watch this movie and I'm like, OK, the one non-white historical figure and they portray him basically like an animal. You know, yeah. and I'm like, not not great. I don't think he's probably speaking an authentic Asian language in this movie at any time. There's a lot of grunting happening. Yeah. And yeah, doesn't really seem accurate to what I read about him. We're in outer yeah. Mongolia in 1209 and Genghis Khan would have been launching an invasion of, I don't know how to actually pronounce this, Western Xia? Xia. Xia. Okay. Oh yeah. You yeah. speak Chinese. Okay. You tell about it. Oh, okay. Well, you can just you use what I wrote, but like, yeah, where would he have been up to? Oh, at, at the at the time he was, uh, I mean, he was consolidating um, the Mongolian territories and, and getting into, um, I think the area is close to Xi'an, and and you know parts of what we call um, Manchuria uh, today, and you know he's not the one who later invades the Song um, the Song Dynasty in southern China. He um, that that's his his grandson or, or his son. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's working, he's making a very big, um, pan-Asian empire uh, yeah. already. Um, the, what, what is kind of accurate is, um, the, the debauch, you know, a lot of ladies, even though he had a, he had a one wife that he really, really loved, you know, there, there's a reason that so many people are genetically related to Genghis Khan, uh, a huge percentage, um, of, of Asian males. Um, or, or just Asian folks are related to Genghis Khan because he hadn't, he made an awful lot of children hmm. and, and, uh, most of the, um, um, lead, the great cons were, had an awful problem with alcoholism. So there are a lot of truncated lives amongst the Mongolian rulers, including, including Genghis. 
So, you know, feasting and drinking, yeah. I mean, to excess. So that's Extreme the actual excess. pronunciation is like... Genghis. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, and apparently his actual name was Temujin. I don't know Temujin. That, yeah, Temujin. Temujin. Yeah. Which means iron worker. And the mm. title, Genghis? Wait, say it Genghis. Again. Genghis. Genghis. The title yeah. Genghis was actually a title, meaning universe ruler. So... I found that interesting. And I didn't even realize he was the grandfather of Kublai Khan. Yeah. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Kublai Kublai finished the job and yeah. and um took out the Song dynasty and yeah. took the rest of China. Yeah, I really this this a whole experience of just looking a little bit more into Genghis Khan like was making me want to read about him. So yeah, I feel like he got kind of short shrift in the movie. He just seems kinda of, like he's kind of like a wild man, like, you know fighting people a lot and fighting the sporting goods store later. Yeah. It was, it's intriguing though. I'm intrigued by him now. So, and he's probably the historical figure I knew the least about too when I was a kid, because we didn't learn a lot about Asian history, you know, no. in our, in our school. I don't know if you did in your school, David, but. Uh, I didn't learn about any history in my school, but that's besides the point. <laughs> <laughs> it's been, somebody probably attempted to teach you history, right? Yeah, well, they, they tried. Yeah, 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 sure. yeah, yeah. Like a yeah. lot of these figures, actually, we didn't learn about in our history class. Like, I feel like we did so much American history focus. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Well, But speaking of American history, they also now get Abraham Lincoln, White House, 1863. I think the figure most people would be most familiar with. 1863 was the year of the Emancipation Proclamation, the Battle of Gettysburg, and the Gettysburg Address. Ishtar, you probably know like a million other things it was the year of, but we're not going to go into that. No um, problem. They trick um, Lincoln into the hall by saying there's a candy gram <laughs> straight out of Blazing Saddles. And um, some basic Lincoln facts. He lived from 1809 to 1865, was the 16th president. Of course, he was president during the Civil War. And he was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. And Ishtar, like, I think we talked about this a little bit earlier, but how do you feel about the way Lincoln is kind of portrayed in the film? I don't know. What are you going to do? Uh, I, I don't I don't know. I, I think, um, well, he's not telling enough stories. And um, I don't, I, I think actually he, his character in the movie seems to like adapt very quickly to time travel. Mm-hmm. I think I think the historical Lincoln would have been down with time travel to the extent that this Lincoln was. Um, especially, he could, probably could have used a break in the middle of the Civil War. Um, <laughs> That's true. You know, it was rough. So I think he would have taken this and, you know, like, oh, okay, this is great. This is different. <laughs> uh, you know, just as long as they get me back. But wow, hey. Um, yeah, you know, his voice hasn't done so well. He kind of had a, a higher pitched voice, which um, – you know, Daniel Day Lewis, um, uh, you know, was attempting to get in the, in the Lincoln film. Um, and, but, but yeah, he was an incessant, incessant storyteller. Interesting. Uh, Yeah. I remember when the trailer first came out for the, uh, the Steven Spielberg, Daniel Day Lewis Lincoln movie. And I know me personally, and I'm sure a lot of other people like myself were like, what is this voice he's doing? He doesn't sound anything like Lincoln and Bill and Ted. Like <laughs> this, this is so wrong. What is he doing? Yeah. Yeah. He was doing what was probably the most accurate portrayal of Lincoln's voice. As far as we know. Yeah. Wow, yeah. That's amazing. From accounts. Yeah. And by the way, I was really hoping that one of you was just going to have Napoleon, the passion of Jonah Ark and Lincoln as your double features, but we haven't <laughs> got the trifecta, but that's okay. I think that's an alternate double feature suggestion. Right that's there. an alternate one. Yeah. There yeah. you go. 
All right, let's begin the spoiler section. So if you haven't seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, it's a good time to bow out now and go and watch the movie. Like, I swear to God, it's much like, it's it's very fun. It's very light. We're putting a lot of more history in here in the podcast than you're actually going to get in the movie. So, you know. You'll get none in the movie. It. A little bit. <laughs> little, little, little glimpses. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. All right. So now we come to the historical figures in San Dimas, which is really like, this is like where the movie just picks up steam for me. What about you guys? Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so much fun. Yeah. yeah. First, Missy says that she needs them to do some chores before she's going to drive them any place. So we have all the historical figures doing chores. One of them is cheating by sweeping stuff under. Is that Billy the Kid who cheats? <laughs> I don't remember. I, I mostly yeah. remember like poor like Gen- Sigmund Freud. Genghis Khan. They have him like drinking the toilet water, which is very sad. Oh, God. That is very sad. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's an idiocracy crossover, you know, like oh, from true. the toilet. True. Yeah. There you <laughs> no, go. He'd be looking for Brondo. Uh, <laughs> yes. Man, those those cons only did alcohol. He, he wouldn't have touched water with a ten foot pole. <laughs> yeah, because it'd kill you back then. The water. Is so, oh, true. You know, true. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, the chore scene. The chore scene is one thing, and it's, it has its moments, like its funny moments. But then. Um, they find out that Deacon ditched Napoleon. Uh, Deacon says he was a dick. <laughs> and Bill and Ted leave to find Napoleon at the water. Pro- They're like, where would I go if I were in San Dimas? If I were a great general in San Dimas, where would we go? And Waterloo. Go- <laughs> and they have no idea that that's a battle. So that's what makes no. that so fa- fucking fantastic. And the water park scene, they couldn't afford to actually film in a closed off water park. So they actually, the, the people in close up are extras they hired Everyone else, like in the distance in the scene, is somebody who just paid to go to the water park that day, which I find wonderful. Oh yeah, that's great. I love this scene. Um, do you all also love this scene? It's oh, amazing. Totally. Yeah, yeah. It, it it's uh, it's the scene that shows Napoleon's transformation. No, he he gets down to his underwear. He's in a vulnerable um, position, and um, he, you know he doesn't know what to. He's he's he faced his failure at the bowling alley. And and now he discovers something, you know, he goes into this dark tunnel of transformation and first it scares him, but then he's birthed anew into joy uh, when he's, when he's thrown into the water. And so then he gets his feet on the ground and, and, it, it, you know, of course he selfishly pushes other people out of the way to get into the slide, but then he becomes an instructor and he starts training his new army in the, in the art of, of water water slide technique, which fits his character because he actually started out as an artillery man and was very technically proficient at at the common everyday tasks his soldiers faced and lived with them. And that's why they all loved him because he he wasn't one of these aristocratic, um, never doesn't spend any time with them, doesn't know anything types. He was you know of them. So. You- You've yeah. made the scene very deep, and it's also ironic that that his victory and his uh, conquering of the water park takes place at Waterloo, the scene of his defeat in reality. Yes, true that, true that. Yeah. Wow. It's a, it's a sad tragedy, actually. Yeah. Well, the sheer joy that this actor shows in this scene is is kind of amazing. Like that, that Napoleon then shows. Absolutely, killer song in the background too. The boys and the girls are doing it. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. Which yeah. band was that again? Let's see. I'm, I'm not sure. One of these 80s groups. I have it listed here. Um, it was Vital called... Signs. Vital Signs is the name that of the band. That's a bad name. Good name. Yeah. We all know the boys and the girls are doing it. Yeah. All the music in this is kind of like like kind of B-side metal, but like 
fantastic nonetheless, right? Absolutely. For me, the, the crowning scene of this movie, though, is the mall montage. And I, honestly, I can't think of a montage in any movie that I like more than the scene at the mall. Um, where does it fit fall for you both? Combined with the Waterloo scene, like this is where, you know, it's just nonstop boom, 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 80s fun. Like yeah. all this. It, it's such a time capsule, first of all, of, you know, setting something in a mall at that moment in time. Everything just feels so authentic and how I remember balls in the 80s, except for you've got these ridiculous situations happening with these characters <laughs> from history. And uh, they each, you know, play into their strengths. I mean, you know, even even Genghis, Genghis Khan, who, you know, we're talking about is maybe not the best portrayal. It's still really fun the way he's beaten up that whole sports, uh, you know, sports store. Yeah. Um, all of it is just so much fun. Yeah, like everybody's got their own thing, like Beethoven's at the music shop tearing up the synthesizer. Um, yep. Joan of Arc takes over the aerobics class. Like it's one of the best montage scenes I've in it's my favorite montage scene in a Yeah. Film. It's mine too. Like I think like the only montage that comes close to it for me is the one in Wet Hot American Summer for the with the yeah. song Higher and Higher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is a classic too. But uh but yeah, no, it's great. So much fun. Yeah, and so the result of all these um, shenanigans in the mall, though, is that the historical figures are arrested. And now there's this whole scene where Bill and Ted bust them out of jail. For me, this scene is just much a little more boring. Like, I don't know. They have to go to Ted's dad's jail where he works as like the sheriff or something. Yeah. Yeah. I like the I like this scene because we get some like fun, you know, how Bill and Ted would, you know, utilize time travel kind of mm. moments in this. So I, I think some of these are really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're going to put the keys behind the sign. Yeah. Yeah. So simple. So simple. Yeah. The keys connects back to an earlier scene where Ted's dad said that he lost his keys. So that's good. Um, the stuff with like the garbage can, I think Ishtar, you already said like, where did they get the garbage can? It doesn't all make sense, but sure. it kind of, they kind of just like, they fake it till they make it yeah. kind of thing. The garbage can almost seems like something, uh, that Neo would do in the matrix. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it looks like it dropped out of nowhere. That's, that's my beef with the garbage can. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I love the part where, um, the guy tries to pull off Lincoln's beard. Oh yeah. And Lincoln's yeah, indignation towards his why I'm Abraham Lincoln. Ha ha. Very funny. Now give me the beard and the hat. And, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry I didn't mention that in the mall montage. Yeah, that part is amazing. Like the dignity that the actor yeah. playing Lincoln dis- displays there too. And he keeps saying, "I'm a lawyer," you know, <laughs> when he's yeah, court. You know, I'm a lawyer. You know, yeah. And then Freud in the police station, like the the police psychologist, is like, "Why do you believe that you're Sigmund Freud? Why do you believe <laughs> that I am not?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. You actually going back the first line that Freud says when he's abducted by them is in German. He says, "Is this a dream?" Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I think the whole experience is when he gets back to Vienna, he's going to write it down as a dream. Yeah, maybe basically. Yeah, yeah. He he had a weird relationship with the supernatural. That's what also necessitated the split with Jung. So we now come we now come to the history presentation. Um, before Bill and Ted's presentation, we get snippets of other speeches. There's like a black girl who actually seems to be giving a pretty competent, you know, presentation about Marie Antoinette and what she would think of San Dimas, like saying, 
instead of saying, let them eat cake, she, she might've said, let them eat fast food. Like she talks, she uses big words in her presentation is all I'm going to say. Like she's talking about income disparity. Yeah. yeah income she's inequality. Like, Our society's going to shit. Yeah. Stratification. Yep. She uses the word stratification. Yep. So she, hers is like the example of what a good one of these presentations would be. Then we get the like kind of bonehead jock guy who says, everything is different, but the same. Things are more <laughs> moderner than before. <laughs> and then as he's dying on stage, he all of a sudden goes, San Dimas high school football rules. And everybody applauds for him. And I'm like, yeah, that, that tracks with my high school experience. Like, Oh yeah. And I think that's probably how it still is. Yeah. This is like a crazy history presentation though, by the way, like, like I remember Mr. Ryan says it's going to take like two hours to do the presentation. We see an auditorium with like hundreds of kids in it. And like, <laughs> I think this probably like relates to like the original ending of the movie. Bill and Ted were just going to give their presentation in the classroom that you see them in the beginning of the movie. And like, it wasn't this big to do. Right. But then the movie felt really like underwhelming at the end. So I think it was a smart decision to move it to this auditorium and have them present it like a rock concert and everything. But at the same time, it makes it seem like like no high school presentation I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, pretty much. It's uh, I, I've, I've certainly never been to one like this. Like, I can't even imagine doing a history report in front of 100 people, right? No. Like, and then listening to everybody else give them. Oh, my God. Oh, God. Yeah. Help me. But I think it was a good choice cinematically. Things can't be exactly like they are in real life in a movie. This is a good example of that. Okay, so um, just as Mr. Ryan has assumed that Bill and Ted have missed their presentation, they turn the stage into a rock concert with like uh, fog machines and music playing. And uh, Billy the Kid comes on stage to introduce them. He is laughed at at first, at which point he shoots out a light. <laughs> and at any time after 1999, that presentation would have been over and the police would have been called. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's proximate. What was that film? Um where the high schoolers, um, you know, fight the Soviets. Oh, from the eighties. Red, Red Dawn. Yeah, it was close enough to Red Dawn where prop. It's probably like, hey, go for it. Good, we got yeah. some shooters here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think the Freud analyzing Ted was wonderful. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. Can you introduce that really quick? Like, just explain what's happening before you say that. Sorry. Oh, oh, of course. Uh, at, at the end, basically all the historical figures get to show off their strengths in kind of a speech montage. And and of course, Joan of Arc is doing um, aerobics and is going to train her troops in this. And Socrates just kind of loves San Dimas and also billiards and um, <laughs> baseball and things of that nature. And, um, and and Freud has a has one of his couches out and Ted's on it, which is which is uh, wonderful. And when he tries to get Bill on the couch, of course, Bill says, Oh no, I, I, I know I just have a mild edible complex. Just <laughs> referring really, to Missy. Yeah. Referring to Missy. Yeah. yeah. That stuff. I, then, I looked at Napoleon's, um, operation water slide. I don't think it will work either. Um, he's trying to send a whole army through Scandinavia, cross the Gulf of Finland into Finland and then invade Russia from there. It's a lot of work. Yeah. You know, like and Russia column. and Russia's basically when he started to be defeated, right? Like Oh yeah, that that in the Iberian Peninsula, but mostly Russia, because he had a he marched an army of five hundred thousand La Grande Armee into Russia and he came back with like thirty thousand troops. Whew. Jesus. Yeah. 
Yeah. Anyway, like they all kind of do their things. And so here, and then Bill, and then Ted and Bill are somehow conversant in these history figures, historical figures too. There's been no actual time in the movie for them to have like realistically learned all these things about these guys, right? So I feel like they must have done another thing where they traveled into the future to study and came back. What do you What do you all think about this? They don't have time for that because of that stupid plot device of the time in San Dimas somehow always ticking. Yeah, but like they didn't have time to learn from Joan of Arc about the Dauphin. Dauphin. Yeah. Like, they weren't reading their history books. They can't even speak French. So how did they learn all this? So this right. is like a completely hyper real, like unrealistic, you know, aspect of the film. I mean, I love yeah. it. I love it. I mean, it, it's none of it's real whatsoever. Yeah. Like, and and also, I mean, it's basically a sentence about each. Like, yeah. You know, it's it's a script that they yeah. learned. So. That's about it. And when did when did Beethoven have time to to find out about slippery the album Slippery When Wet too though? It's another key. I don't know. Thing. I mean, it was yeah. everywhere in the late eighties. So. <laughs> yeah, and 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 when did Socrates learn about billiards? But anyway, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to pick <laughs> on you, Bill and Ted. Yeah, because the topic of this whole presentation is what would the historical figures think of San Dimas in 1989 or whatever, and. Yeah. It's, I can't even imagine that topic being set by a teacher, but it's, yeah. Anyway, okay. So yeah, especially um, for a, for a for a high school senior sort of thesis yeah. project, <laughs> it seems a horrible prompt. Baby brained. <laughs> so the last part of this big presentation is the Lincoln speech, which I feel compelled that I must share. So here is um, their final cap, the cap to their whole presentation is Abraham Lincoln, the historical figure that probably would have made the deepest impression upon their peers. So here we go. And now for our last speaker, one of the greatest presidents in American history, Mr. Abraham Lincoln. score and seven minutes ago, we, your forefathers, were brought forth upon a most excellent adventure, conceived by our new friends, Bill and Ted. These two great gentlemen are dedicated to a proposition which was true in my time, just as it's true today. Be excellent to each other. And... Party on, dudes! Yeah, any thoughts about Lincoln's speech that he gives? I mean, it's it's like I said, you know, kind of half jokingly when it came to the uh, Day Lewis. I mean, you know, this is like the de facto Lincoln. You know, this particular clip that this is what 
uh, you know, people like me who, who didn't take the time to seek out more, uh, you know, educational material on him. Uh, this is what we think of when we think of Abraham Lincoln <laughs> is this clip. And do you think of him saying party on dudes? Hell yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I love four score and seven minutes ago, seven which would have implied ago. that it was like 80 years and seven minutes ago. Yeah. That doesn't make any bloody sense. It was in 1908. You know, what are we talking about here? It makes no sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the part that always got me because like, you know, I studied the Gettysburg Address enough to figure out what four score meant. Right. So. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> uh, anything more to add about the history of presentation or or Lincoln or anything? No, oh, right. I, I I still one my my favorite part of the scene is when Napoleon hits the um sort of like the his risk board with his sword. Yeah, yeah. And it says nice. Victoire Napoleon. No, no, Triumph Napoleon. Triumph. That's, yeah. it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that and my, I should be noted really quick that my brother used to dress as Napoleon whenever we played Risk. So I just yeah. this is important for everyone to know. It's very important, and I utilized a, a, a strategy that you really can't win a Risk game with, which was I fixated on conquering Europe. Yeah, which is probably the worst thing you can do, but I had to. Yeah, yet still you beat me quite often. So I don't know. I think from time to time. Yeah, I do uh, like when Ted refers to uh, Miss of Arc. amazing (laughs) so the end of the movie we see the the time the time travel booth disappears off the stage um all their fellow students get lighters out and say we want more uh continuing the rock band aesthetic um and now like we see them a little later they're still playing their instruments um not very well ted's like maybe we should learn how to play so implying some character growth and then Rufus shows up and he brings the princesses. And like, again, the princesses just come up and they each choose a guy sort of arbitrarily. Or do they go <laughs> together by hair color? Like what's going on here? I thought they'd already established like um, <laughs> their, their pair bonding. Based mm. on hair color. No, no, no. Back, I think it back is in, hair color based. Yeah. Wasn't it back in um, the medieval yeah, time? Possibly, possibly. But based on what though? You know what I mean? Oh, nothing. Yeah. Based on nothing. Um, then Rufus tells the guys that their music is going to eventually end war and poverty, align the planets and allow communication with aliens and household pets. I think this is actually the first time he tells them the supreme importance of their music. Am I right about that? Yes. Yeah. I, I think he might say it in voiceover, like yeah. to the, you know, to us or whatever, yeah. but not, not to them though. They don't know. And Rufus asked to jam with them. He's apparently really good at guitar. George, this was not George Carlin's hands doing this though. <laughs> And um, they are terrible at music. And Rufus then tells the audience, they do get better. (laughs) And that's pretty much the end of our movie. It's wonderful. Yeah. Any final thoughts on the movie before we talk about some details like the bromance? I think that covers the movie itself. All right. um, Before we do the bromance, actually, David, I want to hear if you have any other puzzle pieces that you want to talk about related to Bill and Ted. And that could lead into some of the bromance stuff, too, actually. Yeah, sure. Um, And and we actually did do a Piecing It Together episode where I expand on a a lot more, but I I just brought like a few specifics uh, that I had in mind here. So for things that inspired Bill and Ted, along with Back to the Future, 
Um, I, I have Heavy Metal, uh, mm. the 1981 animated film that kind of bridges the gap between like, you know, heavy metal album covers and comic books and action adventure movies. Um, also, I had uh, the I Want to Rock music video, which is itself <laughs> inspired by Animal House. But, um, you know, Ted being sent off to military school and, you know, the only care about rock and roll. And yeah. Just, you know, that whole kind of thing. Uh, for things that Bill and Ted inspired, I mean, there's so many. First of all, right off the bat, you know, we already mentioned Beavis and Butthead and Jane Silent Bob. I think we mentioned Wayne and Garth at some point, but they fit in there, too. Yeah. Harold and actually, and like, can I stop you just for a second with Wayne's World? So I found mm-hmm. out that the first Wayne's World skit aired on Saturday Night Live the day after Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure yeah. released in theaters. That is so crazy to me. I just found that out too. And that is absolutely wild. I don't even know how that's possible, but yeah. it's it's perfect though. It's a perfect little bit of uh, you know pop culture trivia, but that, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, the other one I thought about bringing up, Hot Tub Time Machine. Yes. Um, you know, yes. something where time travel <laughs> happens in a very silly, ridiculous kind of way. So uh, yeah. You know, there's so many things, though, that you can bring up here. Yeah. And when you say that you did a piece in it together, was it for Bill and Ted Face the Music specifically? Or did you do a Bill and Ted specific, um, the first one episode? So what we did, because, you know, I remember it was, you know, it was 2020, the middle of the pandemic. And, uh, you know, we're trying to make content however we could. Uh, Right before Face the Music came out, I did a special bonus episode um, on both Bill and Ted Excellent Adventure and Bogus Journey as a combination. And we talked about some movies that inspired those and then some movies that those inspired. And so we got into a whole lot of extra stuff as nice. a kind of way of celebrating the series right before Face the Music came out. And then we did a regular episode on that. Nice. Well, if those are those are still up, I assume? Yes, they okay, are. Okay, I, compl- I will find them and I or you can send them to me and I will link those in the show notes. So if you want to hear cool. more of David's thoughts about the puzzle pieces, we can send you that way. And I think yes. that would be awesome. Yeah, so this bromancing. So like some of the puzzle pieces are obviously these other bromances. Like bromance has been around in cinema for a long time. Like some early examples might be like Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. And then in the 70s and 80s, you have Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the Blues Brothers, and of course, Top Gun. But I feel like the right after Bill and Ted, the period in the 90s, there was this like particular type of bromance between young slackers with like yeah. kind of somewhat questionable intelligence. And I feel like Bill and Ted is like the prototype for that. Like we just said, Wayne's World came like it was released like on Saturday Night Live the day after mm-hmm. this. In 1990, uh, 1992, they had their first movie. And then in 1993, we had the first episode of Beavis and Butthead, the the much more stupid uh, pair. Yeah, yeah. Regardless, Absolutely. I loved Beavis and Butthead though. Oh, they're so great. And then Kevin Smith's work like just feels very connected to this now because, and also he used George Carlin in his movies too, which yes. gives it an extra connection. Like pretty much all Kevin Smith movies have a bromance. Like Clerks has a bromance between the main characters, and it introduces Jay and Silent Bob. The one thing I like about Kevin Smith is that Jay and Silent Bob uh, sort of over time embrace their bromance and the sort of romantic aspect of it and call each other hetero life mates. Like they're still referring to the fact that they're heterosexual, but at the same time, like they're not using a particular slur, although they do, they do say some kind of offensive things. Like you could look at them as offensive or not, I think, depending on where you're coming from. What do you think? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think any of these duos ever intend any offense with anything that they say. They're, they're always such like good natured, just fun loving dudes, you know. And and they're certainly never meaning it. Some of it just doesn't age as well. But yeah, um, you know, what one thing I think that does separate Bill and Ted a little bit from all of these, even though there is so much influence there, uh, Bill and Ted, they never really like have a falling out in the movie mm. they just they love each other like unconditionally you know like bill does get a little annoyed that ted keeps talking about his mom uh we didn't really mention that earlier but um you know other than that though like they there's no question that they're they're going to be best friends forever you know and uh whereas all these other movies there's always that moment where they like kind of break apart and go their you know their separate ways and then they come back together for the big finale or whatever but uh th- that's one like little difference with a lot of these guys Oh, like, yeah, some of them, I don't rem- I don't think I've seen Wayne's World in a long time, so I don't remember that, like, but I feel like Jay and Silent Bob are always pretty close together, though, aren't they? So, like, I think they, they might be the closest, maybe, I don't know. I don't recall yeah, them having they, a fight. Yeah, certainly throughout the, uh, the like, those first few View Askew movies, they never do, but yeah. I think they did in, uh, maybe it was uh, Clerks 3 or oh, Jay yeah. and Silent Bob, one, one of those. Yeah. Yeah, I have not seen Clerks three yet, so yeah, we're we're not there yet. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, one interesting thing about the bromance genre is like it's kind of giving men a place to be close to each other, but there's often this discomfort with sexuality like embedded in it. Not being a dude, like I don't like I don't really relate to that so much. Like women are encouraged to be close friends, and it's never like a question of like, oh, you must be in love with each other. Is it, do either of you have anything to contribute about these bromance movies or how they relate to like real life male friendships? I mean, I, I think that one thing is that the, uh, you know, the times change so much that it, it you know, from era to era, it, it changes the way that those relationships are. I mean, we had the whole, you know, Apatow era where mm. it, it almost influenced the culture to where guys were. I mean, I, I remember like in the middle of, uh, you know, super bad and knocked up and 40 year old virgin, like friends saying, I love you to me, hmm. you know, where that's like something that never happened 10 years earlier, hmm. you know? So it's like th- things did change a little bit because of these kinds of characters. Hmm. Hmm. Do either of you have a bromance in your life, in your history? Do you think? Oh yeah. Yeah. My best friend for sure. The way that the way the movies portray these types of friendships, do you find them to be like um, accurate on some level or like relative relevant in some way? I do. I mean, I think it's just a, a constant like you just love each other's company and you love goofing around. And it's just, uh, you know, you, you kind of can't picture there ever being a time when you're not friends. Yeah, the ones listed, uh, I think my male friendships there's been aspects of the relationship in Wedding Crashers, Harold and Kumar, and Step Brothers for sure. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh man, yeah, yeah. I wish yeah, we had absolutely. more time to dig into this on the podcast. I would love to know the Wedding Crashers of it all. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to know that? <laughs> were yeah. you were you indeed crashing weddings or? <laughs> you know? Would have no no, but um, I don't know. You know, having fun getting into mischief and and you know you know making up characters and. You know, uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, these films seem to endure. Like, they seem to be like a version of this in every era. 
And um, do either of you have particular favorites in the genre of the bromance movie? I mean, really, Bill and Ted is one of my favorites in the, in the, the, the genre. I also, I loved 40 year old version. Um, I think Judd Apatow's work has kind of hit a wall lately in the last 10 years, but that still stands, I think as uh, one of the best when it comes to like, just capturing those kinds of dudes who are just like goofballs and just love to, you know, kind of mess with each other, but at the same time, just really truly love each other. Um, I, I think it's one of the best. Yeah. I might, I might track back a little bit. Um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid. Mm. Yeah. Um, especially because they're, they're facing death together. Well, at one point, real death and, you know, and other points, some, um, and, and, uh, they get vulnerable with each other in that, in that, in those spaces and the love shines through. Yeah. I, and, and they also have tension because they're after the same woman, but it doesn't get in the way of their friendship. Cool. Yeah. So I quite quite like that part of their dynamic. I said I've never, unfortunately, I've never had a friend who um, I would be driving somewhere and then Neil Patrick Harris gets in our car. Oh, is, this, is that a Harold and Kumar reference? That's a Harold and yes. Kumar okay. reference. Gotcha. You know, gotcha. I would like I would like that high strangeness to uh, <laughs> to be in some of those. Yeah, I would have to say my favorite of the bromance, I think, would probably be Chasing Amy. But it's probably because there's a woman character who's very related, relevant to the plot, too, because um, I think that's a way into the genre for me. And seeing the way mm. the a woman affects the dynamic of the bromance also, because uh, sure. that's a situation I've seen before. So, yeah. And also, I just like the writing in that particular movie and the performances, I feel, are very authentic as well. So that would be a favorite of mine. So really quick, I want to just get your impressions of the sequels to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Like without spoiling too much, like do you did you see both of them? Do you like them? Is there one you like better? So I love Bogus Journey. Um, I hated it when it came out. I was so disappointed, you know, 10 years old. Um, I just thought it was the worst thing in the world. When I finally rewatched it in 2020, I, I love it almost as much as this movie, but in a totally different way. Okay. Uh, it's just so ridiculous and leans into just the strangeness of it all. Um, I just think it's so much fun. Face the music. I, it's well-meaning and there's, it, I certainly didn't hate it. it. It had its moments. I just think it kind of uh, doesn't stick the landing. How about for you, Ishtar? Have you seen? I've, I've not yet seen Face the Music. I certainly saw Bogus Journey, but it's been a long time. I mean, obviously riffing on um, doing a parody of Death from the Seventh Seal. <laughs> yeah. And having him play Twister, that's the part somehow, just those scenes yeah. stuck in my uh, stuck in my mind. But I, I don't even know what, I think it would be something that I would watch. And if I watched it, uh, I was in a bad way because it would usually be on WGN on a Saturday. And it, probably I would have been better off being outside. That's my memory. <laughs> yeah. So maybe it was a much better movie than I, I remember. But usually I'd be like, oh, shit, this is, is this depression? I got to go. <laughs> gotta go so for me like i remembered disliking Bo bogus journey and i hate to say david but i watched it again like for this podcast and i was like oh no i still mm. really didn't like it i love the death scenes i think those are golden like that whole sequence and that actor are so great um and that's also one of my favorite things that they bring that back and face the music then i think they like that was one of the, I think they took some of the strengths from the first two movie for face to music, like having historical figures, you know, in this yeah. case, musicians 
and then having death. I think it was a bit too polished. It wasn't as anarchic as the first two movies. So I think maybe that's where like the less joy comes from in the se- in the sequel. Yeah. I don't know. But um, I do prefer Face the Music to Bogus Journey, though. Like the parts of Bogus, the other parts of Bogus Journey, the non-death parts, I just did not vibe with very much. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And mm-hmm. I like that in Face the Music, there's actually like women talking to each other sometimes. <laughs> That, yeah, that's certainly a good aspect of it. Um, and I don't want to get into spoilers for it, but yeah. just uh, I don't like the ending at all. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I feel you. I don't like the ending of either of them, though, either of the sequels. Yeah. Um, but the thing that I love the most in Face the Music, though, is they kind of confront the bromance thing head on by having Ted, Bill and Ted and their wives, the princesses, they go to a counseling session and yeah. Bill and Ted schedule it at the same time. And that was my favorite part of the whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like no dudes you have to have like separate relationships with your wives you can't do literally everything together they kept saying we love you like instead of saying i love you and it's like it's so great it's deconstructing the bromance genre in a sense which is really clever i thought yeah, yeah. I, I do i do agree with you the whole film doesn't live up to that but yeah yeah <laughs> Okay, so I think we can then get to our double feature recommendations. So um, let's just do them in little batches of our own here. So my first double feature recommendation is going to be Somewhere in Time from 1980, and that is because of the Matheson time travel connection, okay? As you recall, uh, Richard Matheson wrote Somewhere in Time. His son, Chris Matheson, co-wrote Bill and Ted's. And we covered that on episode 42 of Every Rom-Com. I'm just going to say here that it is a very romantic, very beautifully filmed time travel movie. Very different than Bill and Ted, but I think it could be an enjoyable experience watching them back to back. Nevertheless... Uh, My second double feature recommendation also involves kind of weird time stuff going on. It's not the people aren't time traveling, but their letters are time traveling through a magical mailbox. Uh, So this is The Lake House from 2006, and it stars Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock. I think it's one of Keanu Reeves' more effective romantic roles. So if you want to watch kind of more of an actual romantic movie with Bill and Ted, there you are. And I think Keanu's, you know, pretty hot in this movie too. So if you're a Keanu fan, you might like it. My co-host Sybil hates this movie though, and refers to it disparagingly as the magical mailbox movie. So I'll just, (laughs) I'll just say that. And um, my third selection is going to be 2019's Always Be My Maybe. And that's because Keanu Reeves makes one of the best um, small role cameo appearances in a movie of all time as himself. It's a rom-com. And it's it's just a lot of fun. So I think um, if you enjoy just a funny, you know, kind of sweet movie, there's another one for you to watch with Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And it's got starring Ali Wong and Randall Park, who also co-wrote the script. All right. I'm, I'm not settled on, on mine, so I'm just going to go with what I feel in the moment. <laughs> sure. Uh, I think my, my number one would actually be um, The Little Buddha, 1993 by Bertolu- Bertolucci. And um, because of has Keanu Reeves as the Buddha <laughs> and he's not really the main character, but he kind of is in a way. The movie's about the kids. Uh, but I, I think it was, um, you know, I, I wasn't a big fan of him in, as Jonathan Harker uh, in Bram Stoker's Dracula at the same time I kind of am. And I thought like, well, what is, what is his character in Bill and Ted's translation? He's an enlightened, he's an enlightened being. That's where his next stop is because he's a divine fool. So it made sense for him to be Buddha. Uh, the other one is uh, Time Bandits from 1981, in you know, a Terry Gilliam film. 
and mainly because it has time time travels involved. Some people they do nab. The little boy gets nabbed, (laughs) uh, and they um, nab a few other things because it's actually a bunch of thieves going around who steal things. What what else? Oh yeah, because Ian Holm plays Napoleon. Nice. It's Ian Holm in in it, and Napoleon's like made this comic caricature who promote who only likes small people and short things and small things because it makes him feel big. Um, and what else? Um, I would actually in, involve um, idiocracy. Nice. As, as my third double double feature choice. Uh, it actually does involve time travel, just, yeah. you know, of, of a manner. Yeah. Absolutely. And of, I, I just love movies about people being really stupid. I love <laughs> yes. people just who are really <laughs> stupid in films. And this this one just took the cake. And of course, yeah. it has the Beavis and Butthead connection with Mike Judge yeah. being the the, uh, the creator. So you know, those are those would be my three. I think yeah. that was two thousand oh five or oh six. I forget you forget the year. It all comes Great back picks. around. It all connects. Yeah, it all connects. All right. So I will go with first of all. I might as well do this one first uh, in theaters right now. Uh, it's Joaquin Phoenix starring as Napoleon in Ridley Scott's new epic. And uh, I don't want to get into like spoilers or anything like that, but um, I can't imagine that they didn't look at this version of Napoleon as part of the inspiration for this movie because uh, Ridley Scott has like gone on record that he does not care about historical accuracy or anything like that. He just wanted to make a movie about a silly little guy who rises to power and uh, is very silly and ridiculous and that's all I'll say about it, but um, I enjoyed it. You know, I I really like uh, late period Ridley Scott. I think he's in a very interesting era right now. The movies aren't as good as some of his older movies, but um, they're certainly interesting. Uh, next up, I'll go with Freaked from 1993, Alex Winter's directorial effort, uh, which is a completely insane movie uh, about a, a a guy who's uh, basically kidnapped. Uh, by this freak show and transformed. Um, It's more in line with Bogus Journey. If you like Bogus Journey, (laughs) uh, I think you'll like Freaked. If you don't, eh, I don't know, maybe not. But uh, it's very strange. It's really uh, crazy and over the top, and it's great. I just saw it for the first time a couple years ago. Nice. And wait, where did you – sorry to interrupt, but where where did you find this? Is it streaming or like – I believe it's streaming now, um, but I was actually a guest on another podcast and they they brought it to me to watch. Nice. So, yeah. So, but I believe it finally made its way to streaming because I know it just got a new Blu-ray release. Oh, okay. Um, so I think it's probably available now. Um, and then my third pick is Never Going Back from 2018. You know, we mentioned Wayne and Garth. We mentioned Jay and Silent Bob, Beavis and Butthead. Uh, and we did mention that Bill and Ted technically aren't stoners, um, <laughs> but they kind of share that kind of stoner style quality. And Angela and Jesse, the main stars of Never Going Back, are the perfect female stoner, du- stoner duo. Um, they are just these two ridiculous slackers who uh, they, they basically lose some money and then they, they need to get it back so they can go on their vacation. And they're so stoned that they like don't even really realize the adventure that they're getting themselves into. Uh, it's a film put out by A24 from director Augustine Frizzell. And uh, it's, it's really under the radar, but it's great. And it's really funny and weird and ridiculous and a uh, big recommendation for me. 
Nice. I've never heard of that one. And just like to ask, did they, are they going back in time in this movie? Or like, no, there's okay. no time travel okay. in this. Although they're so stoned, they wouldn't even know if they did. Because so. it sounded like a time travel title, but like it sounds really interesting. I, I'll have to check that one out. Yeah. Right on. So David, to remind people again, where can they find your work? Yeah, you can find Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. I also have a Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where people love to talk movies. You could join us there. And then for my music, uh, all my albums are available on all the streaming services under my name, David Rosen. And I do have a website, bydavidrosen.com, where you can check out all my albums, the films that I'm working on, and uh, my music videos and all that kind of stuff, too. Yeah. And yeah, definitely check David's stuff out. Very good stuff. And my brother, my fine brother, Ishtar, where would you like to send people to see your work or to perhaps solicit meditation teachings from you? Oh, yes. Well, you could find me all over YouTube if if you type in either Ishtar Howell or Ishtar Ishaya. And uh, Ishtar Ishaya, I think, is the will help get you to my actual uh, personal YouTube channel. But I do a lot of interviews with different uh, different shows. And then you can, um, if you type in uh, Ishtar Howell and, and meditation, you'll probably find your way to my my meditation website, www.ascensionmeditation.com, which will be in the show notes. And if you are interested in getting a intuitive or astrological reading, then um, that website is awakenedlightastrology.com. Yeah. And my brother is a very excellent, a most excellent uh, meditation teacher. So if you're interested in something to calm you down or get you some insight, I recommend him too. So really great to have you both on. Thanks for uh, bearing with a kind of a long episode and uh, always a pleasure to talk to both of you. And thanks everyone for listening. Goodbye. Adieu. Goodbye, dudes. (laughs) Goodbye.